The following program is intended for mature audiences. the U.S. government may have physical evidence of, and we're quoting, off-world vehicles not made on this earth. And as I say, in the words of the world's greatest detective, how often have I said to you that when you have eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. Surely the days of the great Martian revelation are upon us. Oh, sadly, isn't that the truth? Life is a lemon, and I want my money back. Everything's a lie, and that's a fact. And this song represents we the people, going up to the powers of our so-called national space program, NASA, which steers us of year after year for many years, that the quest and the goal is to seek out life. But as the song said, life is a lemon. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and all you ETs out there in the bite waves of the Internet and wherever you're at down through time monitoring this show. I'm Gary Legia, the Mars Revealer, known also as the Mad Martian, and I would like to welcome you all to the Martian revelation that is upon you all again now. Welcome to the Bazaar. Today is March 21st of 2021. And you're listening to this broadcast through Global Enlightenment Radio Network Stream, and also now through the Public Stream and Network Stream, as well as through the Martian Revelation Show YouTube Stream Live at www.thefacesofmars.com. That's That's right, which everyone knows is your defense for the war which we all fight against evil dark missionaries. We're all leading you away from the light and the truth and manipulating you all instead to help you open your wallets and your pocketbooks to only join their dark-sided special clubs and their special subscriptions that only allows them more power to continue to mislead you all and to steer you all away from the truth that they themselves not wish to face or even admit to, let alone even talk about. Yeah, UFO Diaries. Faces on Mars. Cover-up controversy. Down through time. Huge conspiracy. It is a conspiracy. Okay. (laughs) That's right, but the Martian revelation is, however, 100% listener-supported, with no special clubs or any special subscriptions to join. Free speech is what we go by here. But the Martian revelation is, however, 100% listener-supported, with no special clubs or any special subscriptions to join. So if you're a listener, please help support the Martian Revelation Show again, which is your only defense for that war which we all fight against evil dark missioners. <laughs> We're trying to work with the goal each week to bring you the bizarre truth one show at a time. 
So please share the facesofmars.com link. But I must also ask you all, though, that you please donate to the show with anything that you could afford by clicking on the big red, white, and blue American Donate button at the top of the show page to allow it to continue being here for you down through time. And we desperately need those donations now because we've got a piggy bank going to where the, anything and everything that will come in will go towards building the new computer system with which I need that will keep this show going as well as my continued efforts in my independent Mars research, analyzing imagery and processing, etc. As it is because of you, the listener, of which makes the Martian revelation possible to be brought to you all back through time. So your listenership and your donation support actually counts. And it helps us all to not only fight, but to win against those evil dark missioners. <laughs> as well as to secure a future which we all could literally make the Martian revelation our reality. By what? By making our fate. And just remember also that if you're listening to this Martian revelation show, then know this, that you are the resistance down through time. We got a cool show for you all tonight. We're going to have return guest Dr. Mark Carlotto back on with us. Chat with us a little about his new book, Not of This World, an emerging picture of the UFO phenomena. And it's really all correlent as it all focuses on back on the picture of life, life out there. The overall question of who, what, when, where, how, why, that's needed to be answered, at least in the basic form regards to life, and from whence it came, here on Earth as well as on Mars. But the overall policy and agenda, it seems, is to not bring you those answers, at least about life on Mars. Though they discovered it in 1976, and after trying to debunk their own findings, they've been on a turtleneck-snail-pay-speed policy agenda ever since, with the narrative for looking for signs of possible life. But more exactly, in Mars' case today, looking for signs of possible past life. Not being equipped to actually detect life that would help answer the age-old questions about if life ever has been or is on Mars. And this kind of makes me want to bring up an article from February 8th that I didn't get into then, but I think it's relevant now. Some scientists believe all life started on Mars. Could life as we know it have begun on Mars instead of Earth? A handful of scientists believe so, and even more think that we should at least consider the possibility. While yet they wanted to debunk their own testing findings, in 1976 on two Viking landers 4,000 miles apart, which both replicated each other's tests, detecting life. But now they want us to cons at least consider the possibility that life from Mars came here to Earth? I don't know, but this special case of the overall theory of panspermia, where life on Earth began somewhere else and traveled or was planted here, has some prominent supporters. These proponents say that the theory makes intuitive sense on what the two planets are like. Let's review the facts, they state. First, no one knows for certain where and how life began. Exactly. We can backform theories based on what we know now and what life is like throughout the fossil and carbon record on Earth. Researchers also study unique qualities that Mars and Earth share compared with the other planets in our solar system. And Mars is in many ways a smaller, older Earth that burned out, in quotes, its natural resources and electromagnetic core sooner. 
Well, isn't it funny? The quotes burned out could be something between the lines alluding to and pointing out the fact of Xenon-129, a signature of only that comes from intelligently designed nuclear weaponry going off has been detected at Mars. So is that a way they're trying to tell us that it was burned out because of these nuclear weaponry? But anyway, this too makes intuitive sense. A smaller ice cube melts faster and a smaller piece of hot food cools more quickly. Scientists study genomics as a way to extrapolate the origins of life. The order in which building blocks like RNA and DNA emerge can be cross-referenced with, for example, the many dozens of Mars-based meteorites that are known to have hit the Earth over time. This idea coalesces around the last universal common ancestor, LUCA, meaning the single cell from which all the rest of the cells on Earth descended. All living things have some most recent common ancestor. Think about humans and say horses, whose most recent common ancestor might be some extinct third mammal species. If you say so, but Luca is different, requiring a lot more backtracking to a much further past. Could the last universal common ancestor be from genetic material that came from Mars? Scientists believe the first life on Earth came just 200 million years after the first liquid water. And Mars panspermias point out that Mars likely had surface water before Earth based on the two planets' makeups. Let's say you expect life to be flourishing whenever a planet cools down to the point where it could start to have liquid water. Eric Asfog, a professor of planetary science at the University of Arizona, had stated, But just looking at our own solar system, which planet was likely to be habitable first? Almost certainly Mars. He continued, if life was going to start anywhere, it might start first on Mars. We don't know what the requirement is, you know, if it required something super special like the existence of a moon or some factors that are unique to the Earth. But just in terms of what place had liquid water first, that would have been Mars. If pieces from Mars were knocked off via ballistic panspermia, and again, ballistic is in quotes, or ballistic missiles... Uh, where an impact breaks off pieces that fly and strike another planet, they could have landed and flourished in the right puddle on Earth. Astronomers say the likelihood is greater for life to have traveled to Mars before it traveled to Earth for very prosaic reasons. Earth is closer to the sun, and anything trying to reach us would have to avoid the sun's enormous gravity, for example. Something traveling from outside the solar system could also be slingshotted by Jupiter's gravity directly into Mars, for example. So meaning if, uh, I guess, meaning if Mars did see Earth with life, then something that came from outside the solar system had seeded Mars. That's always where that goes, down the rabbit hole. But one way to test this theory is to study every sample from Mars for the presence of DNA. Really? And why aren't they doing that on the, aboard the Perseverance forever? They're only looking for signs of possible past life, not even being able to detect present or extant life, let alone they want to look for possible signs of past life. But this is the latest installment in a long, twisting narrative arc for the idea of life on Mars from astronomer Percival Lowell's insistence that Mars was covered in engineered canals to the present, where we know there's some frozen water on the red planet after all. Either way, Mars's once molten core slowed and solidified, reducing the planet's gravity and atmosphere, 
to nearly nothing in removing essential protections for any form of life of which we know. But cellular matter could still exist, dormant in the cold, yet they are defined. But yet disregard their own findings from 1976 and not being sent with the proper tools to go and actually find it. So how are they going to answer any of these questions if they're not even able to detect life? Though they could have been done very easily. So how are they going to determine what those past signs of life are to prove that those were past signs of past life? If they can't even detect life. I mean, come on, who are you bullshitting? So that segues to this article from March 17th. Is there life on Mars today and where? In a comment published in Nature Astronomy, Dr. Natalie Cabral, director of the Carl Sagan Center for Research at the SETI Institute, challenges assumptions about the possibility of modern life on Mars held by many in the scientific community. As the Perseverance Forever rover embarks on a journey to seek signs of ancient life in the 3.7 billion years old Jezero crater, Cabral theorizes that not only life could still be present on Mars today, but it could also be much more widespread and accessible than previously believed. And yet they still want to disregard the Viking landers' findings, acting pretending like it never happened. But her conclusions are based on years of exploration of early Mars analogs in extreme environments in the Chilean Altiplano and the Andes funded by the NASA Astrobiology Institute. It's essential, she argues, that we consider microbial habitability on Mars through the lens of a 4 billion year old environmental continuum rather than through frozen environmental snapshots as we tend to do. Also critical is to remember that by all terrestrial standards, Mars became an extreme environment very early. In extreme environments, while water is an essential condition, it is far from being enough. What matters most, Cabral says, it's how extreme environmental factors such as a thin atmosphere, UV radiation, salinity, aridity, temperature fluctuations, and many more interact with each other, not only water. You can walk on the same landscape for miles and find nothing. Then maybe because the slope changes by a fraction of a degree, the texture or the mineralogy of the soil is different because there is more protection from UV. All of a sudden, life is here. What matters in extreme worlds to find life is to understand the patterns resulting from these interactions. Follow the water is good. Follow the patterns is better. How about follow the data? But this interaction unlocks life's distribution and abundance in those landscapes. That does not necessarily make it easier to find, as the last refuges for microbes in extreme environments can be at the micro to nanoscale within the cracks and crystals. On the other hand, observations made in terrestrial analogs suggest that these interactions considerably expand the potential territory for modern life on Mars and could bring it closer to the surface than long theorized. Again, but yet ignore their own findings from 1976. But if Mars still harbors life today, which Cabral thinks it does, to find it we must take the approach of Mars as a biosphere. As such, its microbial habitat distribution and abundance are tightly connected not only to where life could theoretically survive today, 
but also where it was able to disperse and adapt over the entire history of the planet. And the keys to that dispersion lie in the early geological times. Especially, I will add, in any areas where it seems implicated that life once was there. Listeners to this show could appreciate. But before the Noachian Hesperian transition, 3.7 to 3.5 billion years ago, rivers, oceans, wind, dust storms would have taken it everywhere across the planet. Importantly, dispersal mechanisms still exist today, and they connect the deep interior to the subsurface, Cabral says. But a biosphere cannot run without an engine. Cabral proposes that the engine to sustain modern life on Mars still exists that is over 4 billion years old and migrated out of sight today underground. Again, keep it in between the lines of those subsurface illegals. But if this is correct, these observations may modify our definition of what we call special regions to include the interaction of extreme environmental factors as a critical element, one that potentially expands their distribution of substantial ways and could have us rethink how to approach them. The issue here, says Cabral, is that we do not yet have the global environmental data at a scale and resolution that matters to understand modern microbial habitability on Mars. As human exploration gives us a deadline to retrieve pristine samples on a turtleneck sail pay speed policy agenda, I add, Cabral suggests options regarding the search for extant life. Yes, which they're not willing to do, including the type of missions that could fulfill objectives critical to astrobiology, human exploration, and planetary protection. Well, it seems that Dr. Natalie Cabral seems to be in favor of actually detecting life and say have type of missions that could fulfill objectives critical to astrobiology, human exploration, and planetary protection. Yes, which meaning that the ones that's being done now is not. They're only looking for signs of possible past life. Nothing extant, nothing alive, though it was detected in 1976. And why wouldn't uh, Cabral allude to the Viking lander experiments findings. Maybe that's what she's doing subtly. But it raises great questions. As again, life is a lemon, and we want our money back. So let's get into this next article. The Mars helicopter on NASA's Perseverance Forever rover could fly in early April. The first ever powered flights on Mars could be just a few weeks away. The teams behind NASA's Perseverance Forever rover and Ingenuity helicopter have chosen an airfield on the Red Planet for the four-pound chopper and are gearing up for flights in the near future. Ingenuity's test flights are expected to begin no earlier than the first week of April, NASA officials wrote in a mission update on Wednesday, March 17th. The exact timing of the first flight will remain fluid as engineers work out details on the timeline for deployments and vehicle positioning of the Perseverance Forever and Ingenuity. Ingenuity is still tucked away in the belly of the Perseverance Forever, which landed inside the Red Planet's 28-mile-wide Jezero Crater on February 18th. If the Perseverance Forever reaches the chosen airfield, it will deploy Ingenuity onto the red dirt and drive about 330 feet away from it. The six-wheeled rover will then attempt to document the little chopper's flights using the, its MassCam Z camera suite and two microphones, mission team members have said. Ingenuity carries a high-resolution camera but no science instruments. 
It's a technology demonstration designed to help pave the way for aerial exploration on Mars down the road. If Ingenuity's flights are successful, future Red Planet missions could commonly include helicopters, serving as scouts for rovers and or gathering data on their own, NASA officials said. After helping Ingenuity get off the ground, the Perseverance Forever will begin focusing in earnest on its core mission. The rover will hunt for signs of ancient Mars life and collect dozens of samples which a joint NASA-European Space Agency mission campaign will haul home to Earth perhaps as early as 2031. Yes, turtleneck sale pay speed policy agenda, but it taking forever. But Ingenuity isn't the only technology demonstration that Perseverance forever carried to Mars. One of the rover's science instruments, called the MOXIE, Mars Oxygen In-Situ Resource Utilization Experiment, is designed to generate pure oxygen from the red planet's thin carbon dioxide-dominated atmosphere. Such gear, if scaled up, could help humanity get a foothold on Mars, NASA officials said. Yep, obviously for breathable air, as well as for propellant, for leaving Mars to go back to Earth or wherever. Speaking of building up, from March 18th, SpaceX stacks first Super Heavy, creating largest rocket booster ever built. For the first time ever, SpaceX has stacked the Super Heavy tank section to its full height, effectively completing assembly of the largest rocket booster ever built. While a good amount of work still remains to weld the two halves together and connect their pre-installed plumbing and avionics runs, those tanks are largely marginal and will tweak the massive steel tower that's now firmly in one piece. Comprised of 36 of the steel rings that also used to assemble the Starships, the first Super Heavy prototype, serial number BN1, will stand roughly 220 foot tall from the top of its uppermost ring to the tail of its soon-to-be-installed Raptor engines. At that height, Super Heavy BN1 is just 3 meters shorter than an entire two-stage Falcon 9 or Falcon Heavy rocket, the second and third tallest operational rockets today. Of course, Super Heavy is just a booster, and SpaceX says that the rocket will stand at least 395 foot tall with the Starship upper stage and spacecraft installed on the top, easily making it the tallest and likely heaviest launch vehicle ever assembled. Notably, Super Heavy BN-1 isn't fully representative of the boosters that will support Starship big effing rockets' first orbital launch attempts. For unknown reasons, SpaceX appears to have foregone the installation of any kind of landing legs on the first Pathfinder and prototype. CEO Elon Musk has expressed a desire to avoid the need for legs entirely by catching super heavy boosters and possibly even starships with a tower outfitted with giant arms, but it's virtually impossible to imagine that such a wholly unproven recovery mechanism will be ready for full-scale testing, let alone operational use, later this year. First reported by NASA Spaceflight and later confirmed by Elon Musk himself, SpaceX hopes to be ready to begin the orbital Starship launches as early as July of 2021, just four months from now. Per NASA spaceflight, the first launch attempt will nominally use Super Heavy Booster BN-3 and Starship SN-20. Super Heavy BN-1 is expected to remain grounded, serving as a testbed for inaugural pressure and proof tests, as well as one or several possible Raptor static fires of its engines. If that process goes according to plan, Super Heavy BN-2 
We'll pick up where BN1 leaves off and attempt at least one short hop test, among other qualification tasks. In the interim, between that feed and Super Heavy BN3's launches preparations, it's safe to assume that either BN2 or BN3 will support some kind of iterative static fire test campaign, similar to what SpaceX once did for Falcon 9, gradually building up from tests with a half dozen or so engines to static fires with 20 or more possibly up to and including a full complement of 28 Raptor engines. The first of its kind, Booster BN-1's thrust donut, a donut-shaped plate for the rocket center cluster of Raptor engines to attach to, appears to have been outfitted with hardware for four engines, suggesting a ceiling for static fire tests. It's unclear when Super Heavy will roll to the launch pad for testing, but it's safe to say that SpaceX probably won't wait long after Starship SN11 is done with this high-altitude launch campaign. Stay tuned for updates. So that's good. It shows that he's moving ahead. Not so much on the turtleneck snail pace speed, huh? But this brings us now to an article from 10 days ago. Russia and China! Are agreed to build a research station on the moon together. Oh, but that's okay, George. That doesn't matter. But China and Russia have a plan to build a lunar research station together. Leaders of the China National Space Administration, CNSA, and Roscosmos, Russia's federal space agency, signed a memorandum of understanding Tuesday, March 9th, on the construction of a moon outpost called the International Lunar Research Station. <laughs> yeah, right. The International Lunar Research Station is a comprehensive scientific experiment base with the capability of long-term autonomous operation built on the lunar surface and or in lunar orbit that will carry out multidisciplinary and multi-objective scientific research activities such as lunar exploration and utilization, lunar-based observation, basic scientific experiments, and technical verification, CNSA officials wrote. In an announcement, CNSA and Roscosmos will facilitate extensive cooperation in the International Lunar Research Station, open to all interested countries and international partners, strengthen scientific research exchanges, and promote humanity's exploration and use of outer space for peaceful purposes, officials added. The CNSA announcement did not provide a targeted timeline for the Lunar Research Station, nor did a similar release put out by Roscosmos. The United States is working on its own ambitious moon push with NASA's Artemis program. If all goes according to plan, Artemis will send astronauts to the lunar surface in the mid-2020s and establish a long-term, sustainable human presence on and around the moon by the end of the decade. NASA hopes that such work will help it get astronauts to Mars in the 2030s, agency officials have said. Yeah, turtleneck sail pace speed policy agenda using the moon as a springboard when we do not have to do that. In fact, that'll just cost more. But this isn't about cost. Don't let them bullshit you. It's about agendas and turtleneck snail pace speeds of agendas. But NASA isn't going alone with Artemis. The agency has inked deals with numerous partners in the private sector, and eight other nations have signed the Artemis Accords, clearing the way for their participation in the program. A ninth country, Brazil, has indicated that it intends to sign the Accords as well. 
Russia and China are not among the signatories. <laughs> Russia has worked extensively with the United States in space, most notably on the International Space Station program. But Roscosmos chief Dmitry Rogozin recently said that the nation is unlikely to be an Artemis partner. China cannot participate substantially in the NASA moon push, at least not without new U.S. legislation. Since 2011, NASA and the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy have been prohibited from cooperating on space projects with their Chinese counterparts unless Congress approves such cooperation in advance. And right now, that's not a very smart idea. They're all selling us out to the commie Chinese and allowing them to gain the foothold in space and then to control the dominance of it as well and of the Earth. Because the one goes hand-in-hand in hand with the other. But lo and behold, an article yesterday... It's titled, The U.S. Military to Keep Wary Eye on Chinese and Russian Space Ambitions Under the Potato Illegitimate President Biden. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, then again, that's a good thing. To keep the U.S. military to keep a wary eye on the Chinese and Russian space ambitions. I'd be watching them, too. I'd be keeping a wary eye, too. Since Potato Joe is their puppet, mainly the commie Chinese. A continued focus on the space ambitions of Russia and China is likely to be a through line between Trump and Biden administrations. The space ambitions of Russia and China will likely stay front and center for the U.S. military during the administration of President Joe during the administration during the administration of Potato Joe Biden. Experts say during the presidency of Potato Biden's press. During the presidency of Potato Biden's predecessor, Donald Trump, U.S. officials have repeatedly stressed that Russia and China pose a substantial and growing threat to the United States' long-held space dominance. You're damn right. Wake up! In 2019, for example, then-Vice President Mike Pence said that the U.S. is in a space race with those two adversaries, and the stakes are even higher today than they were during the 1960s Cold War space race with the Soviet Union. Potato Biden has already pivoted away from a number of Trump policies. Of course, we all know what's going on there. But the new Potato Biden will probably keep a wary eye on Russia and China in the space domain. <laughs> if the words of his defense secretary, Lloyd Austin, are any guide. Yeah, there's no guide there. Walk us right off a cliff. He'll keep a wary eye on Russia and China. He can't even keep a wary eye on the steps he takes. He sold us out to the commie Chinese. But in written testimony submitted to the Senate Armed Services Committee ahead of his confirmation hearing in January, Austin noted that space is already an arena of great power competition and identified China and Russia as the United States' two main rivals in this sphere, as they are in other domains. Of course, and now they've only been secured to that position because of their unholy alliance against we the people in this nation and our national space program. But Chinese and Russian space activities present serious and growing threats to U.S. national security interests, Wesson wrote, identifying Russia as a key adversary but signaling out China as the pacing threat. Chinese and Russian military doctrines also indicate that they view space as critical to modern warfare and consider the use of counter-space capabilities as both a means of reducing U.S. military effectiveness and for winning future wars, he added. Addressing these challenges in the space domain is central to great power competition more generally. 
Those counter space capabilities include anti-satellite ASAT technologies, which both Russia and China have been developing and testing. China famously destroyed one of its own defunct satellites during a January 2007 ASAT test, for example, generating a huge new swarm of orbital debris. And you don't think that was deliberate. In May of 2013, China conducted a less destructive test of a different ASAT system, which really caught the attention of officials in the administration of President Barack Obama. It apparently prompted the initiation of the National Intelligence Estimate about the ASAT threat, which in turn kicked off the Department of Defense Space Strategic Portfolio Review in May of 2014, said Brian Whedon, Director of Program Planning for the Secure World Foundation, a nonprofit organization dedicated to space sustainability. The goal of the review is to assess whether the department's investments aligned with the policy and goals in light of the changing threat environment, Whedon told Space.com. Shortly thereafter, General John Hyten, then the head of the Air Force Space Command, began stressing publicly that the United States couldn't take its space superiority for granted. In 2015, for instance, Hyten appeared on a 60-minute segment called The Battle Above, which discussed ASAT technology and other components of the escalating competition in the final frontier in space. It's a competition that I wish wasn't occurring, but it is, Hyten said on the show. And if we're threatened in space, we have the right of self-defense, and we'll make sure that we can execute that right. So concerns about Russian and Chinese space activities didn't originate with the Trump administration, and neither did the airing of such concerns. The U.S. defense and intelligence communities have been focused on such activities for a while now, and there's no reason to expect a big shift under Potato Biden, Whedon said. Yes, there is, and yes, we do. He is their puppet. He sold us out to them. Wake up, America and Americans. You're not a white supremacist if you happen to believe and see what's going on and who Potato Biden really is, which, in fact, he is compromised. And our security is compromised and sold out. But that doesn't mean there won't be some changes around the margins. I hope there is even more of a public discussion on these issues. See, they want you to talk about this because they affect a lot more than just the military. Indeed, a future conflict in space affects pretty much everybody who's going to use space, Whedon said. It'll affect us all here on the ground as well. And I also hope that there's more of a public discussion about what our response should be and what the options are, he said. While America first and America dominance in space is a no-brainer and still shouldn't be the rule, but it's not. It's compromised. We're infiltrated. But anyway, I hope there's more public discussions about what our response should be and what the options are, he said. That really hasn't existed. The Trump administration ramped up the rhetoric and the public discussion of the threats, but did not have a good public debate about what we would do about it. That's because the deep state and the traitor commie craps were canceling that out. They don't want us to know. They don't want us to go. We've been compromised. But the U.S. Space Force could be part of the solution, Whedon said noting that U.S. officials invoked the Chinese and Russian space threat as a key justification for the creation of the nation's newest military branch. But that fix will not be an immediate one if it does indeed come. It'll likely take five to ten years for the Space Force to upgrade the nation's space defenses in a meaningful way, Whedon said. And you know people think that Potato Joe 
is looking out for us and looking at this problem with a serious mind and concern for we the people in our constitution bullshit and you're not a white supremacist or racist if you think bullshit it's all about our rights and our rights to know which brings us to this last article published yesterday former intelligence chief quite a few more ufos detected than the public knows and instead of me reading this i think that i should just play a clip because this comes from maria bartiromo's show with John Ratcliffe, who served as the Director of National Intelligence under former President Donald Trump, who I still say is really the, still the legit president. So let's listen to this. John, uh, you have seen in your role the most intelligence that anybody has seen other than the president as the Director of National Intelligence. And I've been wanting to ask you this next question for a while. I want to ask you about UFOs unidentified flying objects. Um, the, the Pentagon is going to come out with a report by June 1st, and in the $2.3 trillion omnibus appropriations legislation passed in January, it includes the Intelligence Authorization Act, money for the Pentagon to continue investigating UFOs. John, we're going to get this report June 1st. June 1st, keep that in mind. Can you tell us, have unidentified flying objects been seen? Well, sure. We, we have uh, lots of reports about what we call uh, unidentified aerial phenomenon. And this actually um, is a program that's been in place for a few years in terms of a task force that, that has been uh, there under the National Defense Authorization Act. But as you correctly point out, Maria, there's now a report that will be issued by the, by the Pentagon, uh, by the Secretary of Defense and the Director of National Intelligence. I actually wanted to get this information out and declassified before I left office, but we weren't able to get it down into an, uh, an unclassified format that we could talk about uh, quickly enough. Huh, it makes you wonder why. But, but frankly, there are a lot more sightings than have been made public. Some of those have been declassified. When we talk about sightings, we're talking about objects that have been seen by Navy or Air Force pilots or have been picked up by satellite imagery that, um, frankly, um, engage in actions that are difficult to explain, that um, movements that, uh, that are hard to replicate, that we don't have the technology for, or traveling at speeds that you know, exceed the sound barrier without a, a sonic boom. So in short, um, things that we are observing that are difficult to explain. Um, and so, uh, you know, there's actually quite a few of those, and I think that that information is being gathered and will, will be put out um, in a way that the American people can see. We always, when we, when we see these things, Maria, we always look for a, a plausible explanation. You know, weather can c cause disturbances, visual disturbances. Sometimes we wonder whether or not our adversaries have technologies um, that are a little bit further down the road than we thought or that we realized. But there are instances where we don't have good explanations for some of the things that we've seen. And, um, you know, when that information becomes declassified, I'll be able to talk a little bit more about that. <laughs> can you tell us where it was seen? Actually, all over the world. There have been sightings all over the world. And, and when we talk about sightings, the other thing I will tell you is um, it's not just a pilot or just uh, a satellite or some um, uh, intelligence collection. Usually we have multiple sensors that are picking up these things. And so, uh, you know, again, some of this are just their unexplained phenomenon. 
Um, and uh, there's actually quite a few more than have been made public. So I think it'll be healthy for uh, as much of this information to get out there as possible um, so that the American people can see some wow. of the things that, uh, that we've been dealing with. <laughs> you guys get it? So we the people, the American people, can see the things that they've been dealing with. Not just observing, but dealing with all over the world. That says it all. Okay, well, that, that is pretty extraordinary. We so appreciate that, that you're talking to us about this. Can this year get any weirder? Pandemic, <laughs> shutdown, UFOs. John Radcliffe, it's great to see you. Thank you so much. You Have bet. a good Thanks, weekend. Maria. And she's right. How much more bizarre can it get in 2021? Well, just wait and see. Well, I guess with all that being said, I guess it's time that we should go to a break. We'll come back and introduce our guest, Dr. Mark Carlotto. But everyone, I would like you all first to please go to www.thefacesofmars.com. That's right. Scroll on down the page and see the information for tonight's guest, Dr. Mark Carlotto, as well as check on his latest Before Atlantis article, Data-Driven Pyramidology from Suedo Science to Data Science. And under that, click on the link for his new book, Not of This World. An emerging picture of the UFO phenomena. And under that, click his book for Before Atlantis. And of course, you can click on the links to get his other books. The Martian Enigmas, The Case for the Face, and The Cydonia Controversy. And under that list there, be sure to check out my buddy Larry Bowen's video for packing them and smoking them. And duplicate his recipe for homemade nacho. Because listeners to this show could appreciate a really nice treat for the munchies listening to this show. As we ponder the bizarre realities that are upon us now. And again, I'd like you all to please hit that big red, white, and blue American donate button. The piggy bank has been made. And your donation support is very important and appreciated to help get a new system. This one's taking a crap. Everything's going down. We're lucky to still be doing the show. Let's put it that way. It's that dire. But we got it planned of what is needed, but it's a bit substantial. So we can't accomplish it without your help. But I got faith. I got to believe. I got to believe. I got to have faith. Because that's what I was told. And when the bumps in the road come, or the storms, or the blows, one must keep taking the punches and keep getting back up to reach that goal of where we make our fate and usher in the Martian revelation. And Dr. Moore Carlotto is an aerospace engineer with over 30 years of experience in satellite imaging and remote sensing, signal and image processing, pattern recognition and machine learning, and app development. He received a Ph.D. in electrical engineering from Carnegie Mellon University in 1981. Dr. Carlotto has published over 100 technical articles and written six books. His first two books, The Martian Enigmas and The Cydonia Controversy, are based on his two-decade-long investigation of the face of Mars and other anomalous features of the Martian surface. Over the past decade, his interests have shifted from space to history and archaeology. And Dr. Carlotto reveals the new evidences that corroborates Charles Hapgood's crustal displacement pole shift hypothesis and suggests that numerous ancient sites throughout the world are much older than previously thought. And before Atlantis, Dr. Carlotto draws from his unique background and experience to propose new answers to basic questions concerning human origins, ancient technology, and archaeological enigmas. 
But in his new book, Not of This World, an emerging picture of the UFO phenomena, he deals with several cases and discusses the potentiality on what a data leads is that these UFOs or slash UAPs may not be of what we really think they are. So we'll get his take on that to tease us. So be sure to click on his books on thefacesofmars.com and check it out. So thank you very much for being on with us today, Dr. Mark Carlotto. And it's been a little bit, uh, your return guest to the show. We definitely love your presence and uh, appreciate, you know, what you have to say here on the show and your continued research over the years as a fellow Mars anomalist. Uh, you are definitely a pioneer for our work today and especially where I and many others are heading down through time, pun intended, as we make our fate. And like I told you on the last time you were on, sir, uh, <laughs> you're definitely a part of that Martian revelation to usher in as we make our fate. And all the more, Dr. Morgan, it seems like we're really going to have to make it, aren't we? Especially in today's maddening world. But uh, I do love, and so do the listeners, love where you had gone from Mars to the Earth studies regarding Earth's ancient past, Earth's ancient structures, compared to the, you know, um, implications of what we have seen on Mars and what many people believe in. I mean, many people have many various aspects of what we're seeing on Mars, but I think it's a pretty good uh, golden rule. Well, studying that planet nearby, we, we know that life is here on Earth. We know we have megalithic structures, archaeological, ancient here on this earth, and I think that was a good segue for you, sir. Um, was that part of your purpose? Was because of that common sense aspect to check here on earth for where where you went with before Atlantis, and then where you're continuing on with your work? Basically, an ongoing book online, everybody. You can't, you know, beat it. Be sure to click on this book there before before Atlantis. But uh, again, thank you very much for joining us, Dr. Mark. Thanks a lot, Gary. Uh, how long? Yeah, it's, it's been a while since I've been on the show, right? At least a year, I think. Yeah, or, or possibly a little less, but yeah, it's been about a year. Yeah. Track down um, the exact date, but that'll take a minute. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I don't think there's any, I don't think I have any real plan. Um, I just, uh, you know, I, 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 have a, I have a number of different interests and, um, you know, it just seems like it's pretty organic the way I go from one to the next. It's, uh, you know, something comes along, piques my curiosity, my interest, and I go off and kind of get into that for a while. And then, you know, um, um, I after a while, I just kind of burn out on something. You know, I, back in the 90s, I was working on the Mars investigation for, you know, for many, had been working on it for many years. And it was like time to just get out of that and do something else. So I, you know, checked out of that for a while. Uh, and then I checked back in, like you said, into ancient earth mysteries. And um, I feel like I'm sort of coming full circle now with the latest, uh, my latest book on on UFOs and um, UAP, Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon. Um, and, you know, of course, Mars is always a, a, an interest. Uh, it's in the news and everyone is everyone is literally getting interested in Mars these days. So um, exciting time, you know, like you say. Well, very so, much so, especially to where people see your work and how valuable it is, and especially regards to the subjects covered. Uh, I think it's safe to say, sir, that mainstream still has, you know, when people start seeing this, the more interested parties, they're going to be like, hey, 
and the more mainstream people are more like, you know, wanting to keep that under a rug, or do you think times will shift to where that becomes more mainstream acceptable, especially where we're at with these other offshoots of research, in my opinion, sir, and that's a good analogy that you put it, you know, you, you just felt like, you know, you burned out on it, but look where you're headed. You're headed on researches, in my opinion, that's relevant to the other in the long run. Yeah, well, you know, I, I think I think it's all connected. I, you know, I like to sort of think of like everything being explained by this one equation, you know, and, and there's all these different parts and everything has to add up. So I think all the research that people are doing in different in different areas, in different ways, with different skill sets, they're all contributing to, you know, to this process of trying to get down to the truth. And, uh, you know, in terms of the mainstream, I think the mainstream, they they kind of follow, you know, the accepted paradigm, the accept, accepted rules, and then things come along that overturn it, you know. Um, you know, like, um, and, and I think when some new discovery comes from Mars or from archaeology, then then, you know, the mainstream will, will change. It'll happen slowly, but they will change. They'll come around and they'll end up saying, well, yeah, we knew this all along, right? It's, of course, they're always going to yeah, credit. Yeah, but hopefully it's not when, you know, dead and gone and then a statue that turns green eventually gets put a, in your place like uh, Dr. Brandenburg, our friend, says there. It's pretty much how it's always been with science and scientists. You'll be long dead before you're remembered or, or accepted for something. Hold on. That's that's right. That's right. Exactly. Yeah, there was just a little little glitch just now. Can you hear me better now? I'm good. Yeah. Okay. All right. So uh, you know, isn't that kind of funny? Uh, but it would it would it would really suck. I mean, just to put it uh, bluntly, for that to remain in place, especially now where our technology is going and with the things and abilities of what we're able to explore and contemplate, uh, that old paradigm should change. And I think it should be within our lifetimes, especially the pioneers in this work like yourself and, and where I'm going and many others are going in this as we usher in the Martian revelation where these things will be looked at. Do you think that's a realistic scenario in my mind or you do you think that science is still gonna you know mainstream wise is still gonna trudge along uh on a turtle next nail pay speed agenda well or a turtle next nail pay speed um well yeah i mean you know it's, it's, that's the way science works it, it it is a slow methodical methodical process you know they they create these boxes and um it just just a let me just ask you. So I'm I'm sharing the screen now. You see me, and you also see um, the uh, my browser, right? Yeah. See both of them. Okay, good. Because uh, I'll be going to the browser in a little bit. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, science has, uh, you know, they they work in these boxes, these paradigms, and and they don't want to they don't want to get they don't want to leave the box, and they don't want the box to get any bigger. Uh, at least not. You know, they don't want to open it up, let's say, you know, they they move it gradually, like in archaeology, um, you know, when when they discovered uh, these ruins at uh, Gopekli Tepe, they mm -hmm. realized that, OK, you know, thinking that the earliest civilizations on Earth, uh, you know, they used to think they were the Egyptian and Sumerian civilizations, you know, uh, circa 3000 B.C. Uh, but, you know, uh, the, the ruins in Turkey 
force them to consider the possibility that it's, you know, civilizations are much older. So now the, the horizon goes back to 10,000 BC. And, you know, that's, that's becoming, you know, widely accepted now in archaeological circles. Um, but, you know, in before Atlantis and a book I published a few years ago, you know, I was looking at uh, possible alignments of sites to pole locations that go back, you know, 100,000 years. So that that's that's well outside the mainstream, you know, archaeological box these days. But, you know, discoveries, future discoveries could change that. So, you know, it's yeah, I, I get it. I understand why the mainstream works the way they do, because that's that's their job. That That's that's their profession. They're getting paid as professors and as scientists uh, on a payroll to a government or to a foundation to do certain types of work. What's great about freelancing like I do and, you know, others, as you get older, you're able to do this is you can kind of, you know, approach things uh, on your own terms and follow the data. Uh, you know, they say follow the money. Well, we, you know, I like to say that I like to follow the data to see where it leads. And it right. often leads in directions that are unexpected. Indeed. <laughs> and like uh, what your work shows, especially when you said about the previous polar positions uh, from pole shifts, whether obviously physical, um, I don't know how much that would just be pointing to magnetic or do any of them point to magnetic poles where you can't see physically from a physical north or uh, south polar shift and where these previous positions do they go up to that 100,000 year mark yeah let me let me just go to that let me go to a web page that shows the um uh the poles of course now i can't oh here here we go here we go can you see that okay yes sir the, uh global the global view map diagram on the web page yeah. right okay so um yeah, actually, let me blow this one up. So what I what I discovered or rediscovered uh, in uh, my research uh, in the book uh, before Atlantis was that sites um, throughout the world uh, are often not aligned to the cardinal directions. You know, you, you think of the pyramids in Egypt that are perfectly aligned, very uh, within five arc minutes of, of true north. That's one. 12th of a degree of true north, very accurately aligned. Mm -hmm. But you go to other parts of the world, Mexico, for example, and uh, sites aligned to north, south, east, and west are the are the exception, not the rule. Most sites are most most sites in Mexico are aligned in all these other directions. And it, it doesn't at first make sense. But what I was able to do in before Atlantis is use some some sort of mathematical analysis, some you know analysis of, of geographical data, and show that uh, a lot of these sites, about well more than half of the sites that can't be explained, end up pointing to four locations on the planet, and that's shown here. Um, hopefully, it comes through okay. Uh, and these locations turned out to be correlated with uh, previous locations of the North. North Pole that Charles Hapgood, who was a um, scientist in the 1950s, uh, that he had proposed, um, and he came up with this uh, idea based on analyzing climate data, where he found that um, you know certain patterns um, of you know of ice ages, glaciation, and then thawing, you know freezing and thawing, um, 
Yeah, it's generally thought that these are global patterns that have to do with, you know, the amount of sunlight and other factors, you know, changing. But he proposed the theory that what uh, could be happening is that these regions are actually moving to the pole. And so a region becomes cold because uh, not because the sun is becoming become dimmer, but because now that because of a crustal shift, that part of the planet now sh has shifted to the North Pole and it's getting uh, you know, like a polar region getting much less sunlight. And so he had come up with these pole locations um, that turn out to be correlated with these places, these uh, these locations where all these sites, uh, these archaeological sites on Earth are aligned towards. And so um, the, the connection, the, the aha moment was, well, if these were prior poles based on climate data and these sites are aligned to those in those directions, then these sites, the sites that align to those pole locations must be as old as the poles. So if Hapgood believed, say the bear, you know, pole up, his pole was in the Yukon territory in Canada, but uh, I made some adjustments and determined uh, a better location is in the Bering Sea, north of the Aleutian Islands. That sites aligned in this direction uh, would have, could be as old as 130,000 years. Um, and, you know, and then more recent dates that after, you know, Hapgood showed that after the uh, pole was was in Canada, then it shifted to Greenland or Norway in that general area. And I determined that there were two locations, one in northern Greenland and the other in the Norwegian Sea, the Norway Sea, uh, where many, many sites on the planet are aligned. Um, and then most recently, uh, the pole then shifted to Hudson Bay and then obviously currently now to the Arctic. So this series of pole shifts, um, you know, Hapgood came up with to explain climate change. And it turns out that th these pole shifts also explain the alignments of these archeological sites. Now, no archeologist would dare uh, suggest these sites could be that old. That, you know, that, you know, 130,000 years old, that's, you know, Gobekli Tepe is, you know, is 10,000, that's old. So this is 10 times, more than 10 times older than that. So that would be considered, you know, just just completely, you know, out to lunch, um, just to be on the, surface of things, on the surface of things without understanding and uh, reaffirming Hapgood. Right, right. See, the, the thing is, Hapgood's theory came along um, around the time geologists were, um, they were close to proving this thing at the time was called continental drift. Now it's known as plate tectonics. Um, and they use data uh, called, it's paleomagnetic data, basically magnetized rock samples taken at different locations and uh, dated using, um, you know, radiometric techniques, uh, similar to carbon dating, but, but actually using uh, uh, fission byproducts like uranium. Um, and the reason they use this is because it can be used to date rocks and it can be used to date rocks that are millions and billions of years old. Um, and because geological processes are very slow, it works very well in establishing the fact that, that the continents, the, these continental plates have moved and that the Earth's crust has moved over very long periods of time, uh, great, great distances. What it, it, it can't show, however, is if there were sudden shifts of the crust, you know, every say 10,000 or, or 50,000 years, the, they can only, the resolution of these techniques is only about a half a million years, so 500,000 years. So if something's happening 10 times faster, 
It's like if a if a if a picture has um, you know details that are ten times smaller than your pixel size, you'll never see them. And right. so you know, I, I and and until geologists have a way of of detecting shorter term event events like uh, perhaps Hapgood pole shifts, then it'll always remain speculative. So, you know, the argument I have in before Atlantis is, is largely circumstantial. It's based on having uh, well over 100 sites um, across the planet that are aligned in these directions. So that makes a very strong statistical case that something is going on. And, you know, my hypothesis is that it's a series of crustal shifts. But, you know, I, I don't have any proof that the, that, the, that the crust has shifted uh, over this period of time. But, you know, um, what others have done and I, I I have this webpage up because uh, I'd like to highlight the work of of a colleague his name is Mark Gaffney who published a book um, this past year uh, and he actually uh, has done the, the science to show that if you drill down into Hapgood's theory and look at some more recent climate data it actually holds up pretty well and he was able to verify my pole locations. He actually came up with kind of funny. He came up with a different uh, sequence of, of uh, pole shifts than I had. And you know, it's, it's it's sort of funny. You, see, you sort of see how human ego works. It's like I was, you know, I did. I was maybe a little resistant at first, but then it's like, well, you know, his data is really good. So you know, let me step back and kind of revise um, revise. Uh, it wasn't the locations, but it was the order that they occurred in, and. Uh -huh. uh, and it turns out that he's got some really compelling data that, that supports the the pole the, the pole locations in the Bering Sea, Greenland, uh, Norwegian Sea, uh, and uh, Hudson Bay. And um, and actually, because of those because of that update that he provided, it sort of forced me. Uh, it, it created more work for me. I, it's like okay, I've got to revise the first edition of the book, which I did. And in the process of doing that. So many things actually fell into place much in a much uh, clearer and a more compelling way, and mm -hmm. um, and it's kind of you know it's gratifying that when you follow you know you follow the data, uh, you don't get hung up on you know what you said. It's like okay, I could be wrong, so you get maybe you have to change it around a little bit, and you're you know I felt like I was rewarded because uh, it led to some other uh, other uh, revelations discoveries that were even more interesting, um, like on timing of, of, of certain events. Um, and, you know, that's, that's kind of stuff that's in the, towards the end of the book, but, um, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a process, you know, you asked about, you know, do, do I, do I, do I plan to do this after that? And, you know, following something else. And it's like, no, it's like sort of, you know, he emailed me one day and he got me to thinking, and then I kind of got sidetracked. It was like two months later. It's like, okay, I got to change this. And I, you know, that the morning before I received his email, I I had no idea, uh, you know, what I'd be doing for the next couple of months. It's uh, it's just how many work. Right now, how many other pole spots? does he determine in his in his research or has he gotten that far and how many have you determined uh at least based by i'm gonna say the techno signature as it was from the past that helps lead you to these polar places correct how how many are there and did any of them match beyond what you have mentioned of uh of him, and I wonder if he would be willing to be on the show. That would be a good show. Yeah, I'll 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 give you his contact information. I th I think you'd enjoy talking with him. 
Um, techno signatures. That's a great. That's a great um, term, and and that's exactly it. Um, so this is. Uh, I just wanted to sort of blow this up. These are the to go by. They're leaving something to go by down through time, or right. whether they intended it to or not. That's what it would become based upon the megalithic sheer scale of this crap uh, lasting for eons. In yes. my opinion, uh, therefore being able to we cannot be controlled or people like you cannot be controlled you 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 know a lot of scientists like you described it and that's a normal phase for people to go through and but the thing is you're you're open-minded and you're adapting and it and it's benefiting yeah. the overall research of where i think it's still all relevant and, and one day even to mars but that's jumping way ahead so these are like now how many have been pinpointed by you and him and you know what i mean how many previous points because if this is a a model of the earth on on its characteristics over time and and the earth is very old the earth abideth forever generation after generation passes away <laughs> you know and i think that's evident in these techno signatures around the earth in the least whether they were knowledgeable in that or not i think they were so people like you in the future and others would come to see this stuff and understand that, that the earth is far more older and civilization, but that all brings us back. But, oh, you know, we're only, of our history, we're only so many thousands of years old, supposedly, or whatever. But there seems to be a pre-Adamite scenario here upon the earth to where a lot of these obvious structures would be adhered to, pre-human history at least, what has been forgotten. However, I'm a yeah. scriptural guy, so I don't still rule out even with that and my faith to believe that there wasn't something prior <laughs> because, you know, he wipes the earth clean. So, uh, need be, for whatever reasons. So that means there could be hundreds or thousands of previous polar positions in the long run model? Hopefully that's not a dumb question. Yeah, no, I that 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 that's that's a good question. Um uh so so you know being a practical person, I, I I'm I'm starting with with a few of them. And uh because right. Right. the the farther you go back, um you know it it's it's uh it's harder your your data become less less certain and there's less less data because you know things sort of decay and, and pass away over time. But a lack you know, of the techno signature or they're so, buried. Yeah. So so you know what I'm showing here are these these pole locations, and right. um, what uh, what Mark's work uh, demonstrated was that the sequence was starting 130,000 years ago. You went from Bering Sea to Greenland to the Norway Sea to Hudson Bay, to the current location in the Arctic. Now, well, look what, how far, look how far that original point line, well, at least right. in the picture explanation of what I see, look how far and then look how close proximity the other movements are. What? That's a dramatic, a dramatic drop, jump. Damn it. <laughs> right. And, and, you know, and, and, and Gary, all of these uh, could have been catastrophic catastrophic enough to have ended the that that current age so uh you know it's the you know the the biblical end of the world if you will you know in eastern philosophy they they teach that that uh the universe is cyclical 
that there are cycles of change, of, of, of creation, sustainment, and then destruction. And so each of these pole shifts could have been the end of an age and then following that, the beginning of a new age. Um, and so, um, and, and, you know, that, that's, that's a whole conversation in itself. But, you know, I just want to get back to talk about what Mark Gaffney did. He yes, was sir. using techno-signature data uh, in the British Isles. Well, I'm moving the cursor in this general area here, if you can see it. And based on, on that, he was able to determine from, um, he was using uh, bones of mammals. Okay, so uh, they're called assemblages. They're like uh, collections of bones at different, uh, at different depths, different strata that can be dated, uh, you, you know, using a uh, you know, number of techniques, carbon-14 or radiometric dating. And then looking to see what species uh, are present at different times gives you an indicator of the climate. And it turned out that 130,000 years ago, um, the British Isles had a subtropical climate. Now, how could that possibly be? Hmm. So he's using the fact that there were hippopotamus and other uh, subtropical species present in, in these bone caves, the, the bones of these mammals, to infer the fact that the climate was much different in England. And you can see from this diagram here, if the bearing, if the North Pole was here at that time, right. and England is here, that turns out to be, um, it, it's, you know, I don't really have the, the, uh, the audio visuals here, I'm gonna have to kind of hand my, uh, wave my hands a little bit. But this okay. distance here is, is, a, is, is a, a, a significant fraction of the distance from, from, a, from the pole to the equator. So this, when the North Pole was here, this point here was within about 20 degrees of the equator. Wow. Now, you know, England is like, what is it, 50 degrees north, something like that. I don't know right. exactly. So anyway, so, yeah. so anyway, yeah, you might want to talk to Mark. He's got some, some really good information, and he just published a book this past year. Um, and just let me also add that a lot of this uh, information, a lot of these, uh, you know, techno signatures uh, correlate with sea level change. Uh, this graph here shows sea level change over the last 130,000 years, last uh, 200,000 years actually. And uh, I correlated here with the different pole locations. The idea is that when the pole shifts, the ice that was at the pole melts. So what happens is when the pole shifts, the sea, the uh, sea level, as the ice melts, the sea levels go up, and then it, as the you know, with the new pole in place now, a new pole begins to form and sea levels decrease, until there's another pole shift and then the cycle happens again. And uh, anyway, so um, you know, that's that's the general idea. Um, my my thing is more into the archaeological uh, alignments, uh, less so into the climate science because I'm not a climatologist. I try to stick to what I know. Right. Uh, uh, but anyway, you might yeah, he might be an interesting but guy. To have, relevant, have all relevant and connected, and uh, yeah, we definitely appreciate that. No one's yeah. uh, you know jack of all trades uh, where it comes to these. There's so much research and science that needs to be done and culminated together for an overall picture. Once everyone's data is pretty much uh, correlated. Right. Right. Let me just mention that all this information is on uh, what I just talked about is on beforeatlantis.com. Uh, so this is my blog website uh, where uh, you know every 
it varies. Sometimes it could be every week. Sometimes it's every two months. I think the last, my last post was uh, six months from the previous one. So it's pretty. Everyone is being modest because it's basically a continuation of his book online for free. That's right. And there's a lot, there's actually a lot of the book um, here. Um, probably a lot of the next edition of the book uh, online. Oh. Um, and uh, I, excuse me. <laughs> Sorry. Thank you. Anyway, so um yeah, and you know, and the reason I write it down is because I forget, you know, I'm I'm going through that and uh, it was a good visual aid because I was uh, you know, I was I was working that stuff a couple couple years ago. My latest post couldn't be you know, any more different. It's um it's uh, I call it data-driven pyramidology from pseudoscience to data science, and it's about estimating the age of the pyramids. Um, and you know what I think I, I you know, the, sort of the common denominator here is I try to use when I when I have a when someone comes to me with a problem, or I'm I'm looking at s some new problem or some data. It's like, okay, is there a way of actually using some kind of simple math models to to try to explain it? Either as you know, as hey, this is you know, uh, there's a commonplace explanation for this, or or no, this this just doesn't fit the facts. So I try to rely on some simple math, nothing crazy, but you know, some simple math, and that's what I actually do in this uh, this post uh, from this past uh, it was a couple weeks ago on uh, on the pyramids. All right. So we could. Uh, so we've gone uh, from 130,000 years ago to. Uh, 3000 BC. That's kind of it's quite a, quite a quite a jump. Um, so we could you want to we could talk about this for a bit yes, or we could yes, do something definitely. else. Yes, definitely. Because that place is all math as well. And you bring up a good point because of these techno signatures, how mathematical it is. And we're still learning about them. Maybe if we would understand all that math encoded in that may be the story you know my crazy you know, Gary, you're my you're gonna be you're my perfect straight man because that's 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 actually the the perfect connecting thread to this article it's a it, this article is really about techno signatures and i just kind of realized that well it is i mean all these sites but that's the thing too that cannot just be a coincidence maybe it's part of a, a even a higher language with those that understand it you know, does Mars or pre or I mean, that gets into interesting conversations we'll get into uh, on what they embed in their in their structuring, their layouts, uh, previous polls, even using that. That could tell a story. But I would say that would be more, much more advanced, at least much more than I am in thinking and probably of humanity. But I think we're on the path. Well, yeah, you know, and and I think I think a lot of the I think a lot of the clues are there. And and what I did so like what I did in this article is I said, okay, let's look at you know, there's there's a bunch of pyramids in in Egypt in um, in in Lower Egypt. There's mm -hmm. um you know some pyramid some of the pyramids are are very are very old. You know the uh, the Giza pyramids those are like at least uh, twenty five hundred BC, uh, and then there's other more recent ones that came. You know, twenty eight, twenty nine hundred BC. I'm sorry, uh, uh, close uh, eighteen, nineteen hundred BC. Going the other way, more. In other words, younger. Um, 
And and what I decided to do is say, okay, um, people always say, well, these these pyramids in Egypt, the the you know Khufu, the the Great Pyramid, also known as Cheops, it's this enormous structure. It's perfectly aligned to within you know one twelfth of a degree of true north. Um, it's massive. I mean, the amount of stone. Most likely, and that, most likely, that must have been the maybe the first main structure before the other pyramids there. I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah. So, so that, so that's a thing. So, you know, Egyptologists have, have this, this chronology where, uh, and actually that's what I'm showing here. These are, these, uh, this table here has, um, let me just blow this up a little bit, make it a little bit bigger. Um, so here are some pyramids. Actually I can zoom. I click on it. I can't do that. Okay. Um, so I have the, Pyramids in their year, um, and uh, they're they're in relative order. So the oldest one is thought to be uh, Dozier, twenty uh, twenty six forty BCE, and then Maidam, and then the you know then the then Bent Red, then the Giza pyramids, Khufu, Khafra, and Menkar, and then um, then pyramids that came later, the fifth dynasty pyramids, um, and so um, notice all the question marks. Why so, so many? Is it be? I mean, are they the less advanced ones of the two on top? I mean, just by chance, I might mean nothing. No, no, I'm this just, is this is perfect. You're asking exactly the the right. This is a great question. So, I uh, let me just scroll back up to this table. Actually, I have all the dates filled in, and these uh -huh. years are the accepted years. This is the dates that Egyptologists believe they were built. Okay, but okay. then I decided to say, okay. Uh, e e even though Egyptologists think they know the dates of those pyramids, they can't explain how all of a sudden they got so much bigger than anything that came before them, and they were much more precisely aligned. For example, um, if we look at the the length and the height of uh, these pyramids here, notice how you know the, the base length, 144 meters, height 94. Look at how it shoots up. To such a high value, you know, the Great Pyramid is 230 meters tall, 147 meters on a side, and then it drops down again. They can't really explain that. It's like they acquired this technology and they lost it. What's even more interesting is that the uh, the accuracy in which these are aligned. So th this this is the accuracy to true north that these are aligned, and this right. is, this is um this is sort of um. Khafre's just about spot on, it looks like. That's that uh yeah, actually Khufu's the closest, minus three point four. That's the closest. Uh -oh. That's the closest. And Khafre is, is is uh right Six. after that. But okay. as you move away from this point later and earlier, um they 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 diverge. Similarly, the accuracy, which is the um that's how close to north they are. When they um, and this goes actually back to the 1980s, uh, Flinders Petrie, uh, British uh, archaeologist, made an incredible survey of the Giza pyramids, and he took measurements of he measured everything like with accuracies uh, down to a hundredth of an inch, if you can believe it. Wow! Uh, and and by averaging a lot of measurements together, together you get sort of the average value, and then you also get what's called the standard deviation, which is you know. It, which is sort of a, a variation. And what you find is that the variation decreases. So things become more precisely aligned. In other words, all the parts of Khufu are aligned in that direction, whereas 
in uh, later and earlier pyramids, there was a little bit of slop, a little bit of, of inaccuracy. So I'm actually using these as techno signatures. I'm using the standard deviation as a measure of workmanship. So in other words, if you're really precise, your standard deviation is real small. You know, think about like if you're building a house, you measure the corner angles. If they're all exactly 90, 90 degrees, you're doing a good job. But if one is 89 and the other is 83 and one is 90, 96, now your house is going to be, you know, it's pretty shoddy construction. Same idea here. And so using the accuracy and then the, the volume, which is the length and the, and the height taken together, you, using those as techno, techno signatures, I, I did the following. I said, okay, let's figure out, based on these more recent pyramids here, uh, what the relationship is between the volume and their accuracy and their data construction. And you can actually figure out, work out an equation to do that. It's hmm. uh, it's it's called linear analysis or linear it's a linear regression, and it's basically yeah. just plotting uh, one variable against another. And if you know, like for example, if one is uh, correlated with one variable is correlated with another variable, like here we have the length of the base of a pyramid and the error. You see, there's a, there's a correlation that says that pyramids that are bigger have bigger lengths are have a lower error. They're more accurate. They're more accurately aligned. Wow. So anyway, you can exploit this information as data and say, OK, let's using the data from these early, early, early pyramids, let's mm -hmm. sort of extrapolate. Let's go back and estimate the ages of these other pyramids that I left as question marks here. Right. And which when you do that, you get ages that are at least a couple hundred years uh, older, at least. And what this paper talks about is a bunch of experiments where I use different techno signatures and I get ages that uh can be up to uh you know back to six seven eight thousand bce wow. and uh with this plots here is you know putting them in rank order khufu would be the oldest then followed by Capre, red bent pyramid uh Maidam, um and card and so forth and it's sort of like this this would be as opposed to the currently accepted chronology this would be one based on on the data. If you put things in this order, then what it says is if you plot now, so this is the, um, so what I compute is what I call a technology index, which is sort of how big something is, is and how precisely it's aligned. So the bigger it is, the higher the value, and the more precisely aligned it is, the bigger the value. It's actually. Um, you would expect I, the older it would be the lesser, that it would be the degraded or, or, not the perfected exactly exactly so you would expect this technology trend to to go up what it does in egypt is it goes up and it comes down <laughs> so so but if you put it and that's the accepted based on the accepted dates of construction now if right. you use my dates that are estimated based on these these data models you get uh and you put them in this order so now khufu is the oldest what you end up with are curves that that reveal technology declines. So, and, and this is the speculation that uh, many have uh, have uh, have suggested, and you know, sort of just, um, you know, sort of like arguing arguing in sort of general terms that yeah, it looks like they they the technology became less and less. Well, what I've tried to do here is actually measure it, and it turns out that 
it appears that the technology based on these techno signatures actually decreased over time, which is exactly what we see in Egypt. But it's not what Egyptologists are you know, willing to accept. They believe that this is the story they believe that somehow things that got everybody better. Everybody's stuck and, on the ground. Whoever did this, in my opinion, Dr. Mark, and this might be related or not to your research, but uh, they were spacefaring. If in our age, and we're at the lowest, and we're spacefaring or the potential thereof, well, you see how things are. Think about, and we can't duplicate that of what came before, which is the, the perfected pretty much. It's not a far leap that they were spacefaring. That raises implications as well. And I think common sense ones from a thinking out of the box go what a data lead you to me I, that's what a data would lead me i'm sorry to interject with that that's probably steered you off but i just wanted to get that out no no i mean I, and i think uh you know I, I know we're coming up close to the top of the hour and um uh you know this might be what we want to talk about in the second hour because this is i think you're leading exactly in that direction um okay, fair enough so, so that. <laughs> anyway, so so yeah, this is the this is sort of my some recent uh, uh, research, and what I'm basically what I'm trying to do is 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 go back and look at other you know, other claims that other uh, researchers have made. Uh, you know, another common claim is that uh, the pyramids are aligned to the stars, uh, and, and not just in Egypt but in other parts of the world. So, um, you know, I'm trying to test that by using, again, mathematical models to, to measure how, you know, how correlated positions of pyramids on the ground to stars in the skies are. And to previous other poles where the bases of these ancient structures were as, as the more advanced and then the lesser advanced in the trend lines uh, would obviously connect to that. What you laid out there as laying them out on the, the newer poles on top of the previous bases for the older ones, right? Now, I had a question asked somewhere. <laughs> I mean, but, you know, um, because, again, that it, it, again, I, I brain farted, but it's a question there. There's a big question there because over time shows, again, the, the signature of his place, and his position would those oh that's it would those match any star lineups even in those previous polls i don't know how much research is done with there but let's say the ones that you lay out sir as correlative to the techno signatures on the ground that which is harder to data to to lead you to that does any maps been done on the on those polar positions on matching up with stars i think that's a good question yeah, uh, and, and uh, I, I can't answer. I can't answer the stars, but I can answer. Right. Um, so what the um, you know what the uh, poles sort of explain is how the 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 direction of the North Pole has changed. But what you find, like um, you know, you look at a place like Stonehenge, is that their alignments not uh, not uh, necessarily to the cardinal directions exclusively, but also to solstices. You know, the first day of summer, the first day of winter. And then then there's also a lot of sites that are aligned to the moon. They're aligned to what are called uh, lunar standstills, which are kind of like solstices, but with uh, but regarding the moon. Uh, solstices are like the extreme 
uh, swings. Uh, in other words, the farthest north or the fa farthest to the south, the sun uh, rises and sets. And so right, which is just... the seasons and, uh, yeah. and when right. the plants and all that and yada, yada. That's right. The moon has a, has a uh, what is it, like a 19-year uh, cycle, forget, something like that, where it goes through uh, a, a sort of the same thing that the sun does in a year, and the, and the position of the moon swings to these extremes. And so, uh, anyway, so you have solstices, lunar standstills, and cardinal alignments. In Egypt, it turns out that um, there's a lot of sites in Egypt that can't be explained in terms of um, of alignments to, to anything. I mean, there's some speculation that they could be aligned to stars. But what I did in Before Atlantis is I said, okay, let's look at uh, not just the pole positions from these prior pole shifts, but if the pole was in a different direction, then the solstice angles, the lunar standstill angles would be different. And so what I was actually able to do is, um, is show that there's a number of structures in Egypt. Um, for example, uh, there's the structure uh, called the Osirian or Osirian, uh, and it's next to the uh, Temple of Seti I in uh, Abydos or Abydos. Um, uh -huh. I say both because I'm always, if I say one, someone's going to correct me. Ah, potato, potato, good. <laughs> exactly. Uh, it turns out that uh, the alignment of, of uh, these structures in, uh, and I have that here, see if I can yeah, zoom up on it. Um, in Egypt, they're perfectly aligned to the solstices, to the solstices not uh, relative to the current pole position, but when the pole was in Hudson Bay. So back, if you go back, um, you know, 12, 18,000 years ago, prior to the last pole shift, when the pole was in a different location, based on this theory, this hypothesis, the whole, if the pole was in Hudson Bay, then the solstice angles would be different. And it turns out that they align perfectly with uh, this temple in Egypt that doesn't really have a compelling explanation otherwise. They're, they're, they use models of alignments to stars and so forth. But what happens with star alignments is that um, it, well, there's there's actually a lot of there's a lot of debate whether things in Egypt are aligned to the stars or the sun, and you can kind of argue it either way. Um, but exclusively in the past, it was assumed that these were assigned uh, they were aligned to the stars. What this theory though provides is an alternative possibility that they were aligned to the sun, but during a an earlier time. So to your you know what you were asking about before, you know these alignments changing. So this alignment now doesn't does doesn't necessarily make any sense, but it did back then. Um, and you know, I think the pyramids are much uh, the pyramids in Giza are much younger because they they because they are aligned to the cardinal directions. And if at, you look at the current point at our current point in Earth's geologic and history. That, that's, uh, they, they, boy, that's like a signature. Okay, boom, a tattoo imprint of an age. At least someone may be able to determine that was the age of that age uh, and compared to these other changes. Okay, so let's see. We were talking about uh, the alignments of certain sites in Egypt that don't seem to have any uh, obvious explanation uh, in terms of the sun or solstices or uh, lunar standstills um, today. 
But based on poll shifts, um, there are a number of sites that uh, turn out that they uh, reference these prior polls. Um, and what, the pyramids in Egypt? So yeah, not not the pyramids. So yeah, this is where I was okay. going before we were before we were cut off. Uh, this map here shows um, sites that are aligned to the current poll, and it turns out that. So this is Lower Egypt. So this is where the pyramids are, and this is Upper Egypt, where the temples are. Mm -hmm. And there are more sites in Lower Egypt aligned to the uh, cardinal directions, to the current pole, than there are in Upper Egypt. On the other hand, if you look at sites aligned to other poles, either directly in terms of uh, pointing to them as, you know, directly to the pole or referencing, say, solstices or uh, lunar standstills, um, defined to those current poles. There are more sites in in uh, Upper Egypt that are aligned to previous poles than there uh, are in, in Lower Egypt. So based on this uh, sort of, it's it's almost like, like almost black and white. It's like Lower Egypt and Upper Egypt have different alignment statistics. And again, this is not just one or two pyramids or temples. This is, you know, quite a number of them. And Therefore Upper Egypt's would be in that light, if I'm right, sir, and, and interpreting, they would be older than the ones in uh, Lower Egypt. So that that's that's right? second, yeah, that's the hypothesis that that these are the older temples, and wow. the ones in Lower Egypt were wiped out when when the last pole shift occurred because you know it's it's close to the Mediterranean. It's 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 um, and it's also uh, really not all that far from earthquake. Uh, fault, you know, fault lines and and um, areas of tectonic activity in the Mediterranean. That hmm. Lower Egypt would have been inundated by by the you know ensuing floods, whereas Upper Egypt was protected. And so that's why we have more old things in Upper Egypt than in Lower Egypt. And we do see that evidence, especially on the Sphinx area. That might be an explanation for the wearing, or would that be too quick of a rush to leave that type of uh, erosive where over time would do it? That Again, that may not be relevant at all. It's just an interesting subject of that. No, no, I mean, I, yeah, I think, you know, this is, you know, this is the time frame that, you know, nowadays alternative archaeologists are, are you know, the Hancocks and Bavals and, 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 uh, and shocks and you know and late John Anthony West they were talking Egypt over the last say 10 uh, 10,000 years say going back to 10,500 BC and yeah that's the period that they believe that the sphinx in, uh, encountered much more uh, was older and is uh, as appears to show sign of, uh, signs of water erosion because it existed back when the climate in the sahara was more was was it wasn't a desert it was more temperate but hmm. this period I'm talking about here goes back before that. It goes back, right. you know, 10,000 10, years even before that. So, wow. yeah, we're talking about stuff that's really old here. And, you know, this is this is really hard. I think, uh, you know, admittedly, this is going to be very uh, hard to get any kind of mainstream thinkers to latch on to because it's, it's going to take literally a set, a series of really incredible discoveries, probably uh, I thought he was going to say a set of balls. <laughs> well, no, I think, yeah, buried very deeply, um, you know, because, uh, you know, the old the old stuff is really deep. And so uh, I, you know, I like to think that as they start digging deeper, if they if they have 
uh, the ability to do that at some of these sites and go below the existing foundations, they may find evidence of these earlier foundations that would support this um, this idea. That would be incredible. Have you talked with anyone um, around these sites that may be opening, open to that idea or that seems to think the possibilities as that theory there? Well, you know, it's... Uh, not, not so much in, in in Egypt, but a little bit of talk in in uh, about sites in in um, in Mexico and Mesoamerica. But you know the problem is like with with a lot of these sites, the government they're 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 controlled by the government, the governments, the native you know governments, and right. governments have their uh, archaeological uh, uh, departments and archaeologists that are you know. Um, uh, their their job is to basically study and maintain and preserve uh, these sites, and uh, they tend to be you know mainstream thinkers. So it's 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 going to be an uphill battle. I think it's going to take some some. Um, I don't I, I can't predict. I'm not I'm not really good at predicting things. But a good amount of money for the the rest of their hand to let someone start uh, digging around. Exactly. If someone came up with a lot of money to 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 fund you know to really. It's it's sort of like I don't know if you watch Oak Island. Uh, it's one of my addictions. The uh, Oak Island. We talked about that on a previous show. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you know that's that's the sort of thing. You know they're they're going to have to go down a hundred feet. It's going to you know and it's obviously they're spending a lot of money there. If if there weren't people willing to spend money, we'd probably never get to the answer. I think they they will figure that out. And I think that's what's going to take at some of these other sites is a lot of money to say, hey, look, we, we think there's something really interesting buried uh, and you take a chance. They're not going to know for sure. It's not going to be a guarantee. Right. It could be. Yeah, we think. But it turns out, yeah, there's it's it's there's nothing there. You, so you got to be you know, willing to take that that chance. I mean, I don't have money to do that. But someone does. Right. Yeah. They'll come out you with pitchfork and torches if nothing uh, comes to it. That's the right. problem, but progress, therefore progress gets stalled. Uh, but I think it's, again, from open-minded thinkers and people with their ability, especially if they have the means of cash or can otherwise finagle uh, governments and uh, politicians around to do what should be done as a benefit for us all, unless they really just don't want to know the answer. Or they know the answer and they just don't want us to know. Right. <laughs> right. There's always that. Yep. And, you know, it's not trying to get on a conspiratorial bent there, but all of that exists, applies to Earth as well as to Mars. And I think you found a very well much know of that, especially by the work and what you want to get into. Um, all right. So these of Upper Egypt, which is really uh, in the physical sense lower and the lower is really in the north is north of there. Um, so they appear to be older than than the pyramids, per se. What about uh, technology? Are they are um, are they similarly done? Uh, do they look less advanced or just as, or you know what I mean, uh, compared to that? Then because that raises implications too. Well, you know, at, at some of these sites are quite quite advanced, like uh, like the the uh, the Os the uh, Osirian uh, in. Uh, Abydos is, uh, you know, it's it's made of these. I don't have a, I don't have a picture here, but it's these huge, you know, uh, many multi hundred ton blocks of of granite that, uh, and I'm sure you've seen them stacked um, 
uh, with you know supporting you know the, these these trilithon types of structures with 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 these giant blocks and, and lower blocks underneath them, you know the same scale of construction. Let's say it, perhaps if not greater than what you find in Lower Egypt, although I think it's probably comparable to what you find in like the Sphinx Temple and and some of the temples in Giza. But yeah, I mean the there's 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 comparable. Um, uh, construction technology uh, in in uh, Upper Egypt as well, um, and you know the hypothesis is that you know these were just different uh, different uh, eras of of uh, you know different uh, ages of the Egyptian civilization that it actually went back you know prior to the pole shift, prior to the floods, because uh, this is actually what Plato tells us. For crying out loud, what's that? For, prior to the Egyptians for cry for crying out loud. <laughs> and, right. Again, human history. It's pre atomite it appears. Right. And and that's why, you know, the, even this latest paper on uh, the pyramidology paper showing uh, possible evidence that the pyramids predate the dynastic period, three thousand BCE, I think is significant because before that uh period there are these mythical figures, the companions or followers of Horus, this, this uh, the Shemshu Hor, and and these are, you know, spe people speculate that these were uh, members of, a, of an earlier race, uh, the the race that actually had this advanced technological knowledge that the Egyptians inherited, and gradually, you know, over the period of the fourth fifth dynasties began to lose, uh, as is evidenced in the, de the decline in their construction technologies. So, yeah, I mean, it all kind of fits together, um, but it's it's totally radical and alternative. Well, I think that's the way that things have to be looked at. You know, we're seeing radical up there on Mars, and what I see is someone's handiwork. And uh, the only comparable thing, again, here doing what i and many others appreciate you doing getting it is what's here on earth that may be even a potential techno signature of that but then again that doesn't mean that there is because there's still big gaps in time between the timelines of earth at least regards to these as well as what's been estimated on mars correct for that for any yeah. correlation yeah. Right. And, you know, that's that was sort of the thing that motivated me to look at, you know, before Atlantis is like people talk about Atlantis and a previous civilization. Well, what if there were, you know, a series of civilizations and that, that series stretches back hundreds of thousands of years? And that begins to bridge the gap between what we might, you know, what might be present on Mars. So it, it sort of fills it in. And because um, I think, you know, getting back to my my um, my intuition is that everything and it's all got to add up. You know, this one equation that explains everything, it's all going to make sense. You can't have something that makes sense here that contradicts some other fact over here. It's got to all kind of be consistent in, in some way. So, Right. But again, Mars is a totally different place. It may have been not even us or anything connected with us at that point in time possibility, which implicates, again, civilizations is universal. Because life is universal at that point, if you go by the out-of-the-box thinking. <laughs> right, right, right. So, but either way, the, 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 the trail to discover all this. Now, what's this site that we are looking at here? I notice it slaps right there in the middle, pretty much, of it, of a construction going on. It, it looks determined, that's for sure. It don't look coincidental. It's lining up with, what are we looking at here? 
Yeah, I just I just wanted to change the graphics around a little bit uh, to make it you know, screen a little bit more interesting. This is uh, this is another site in, in Upper Egypt. Uh, this is the uh, Ramesseum, uh, Ramesseum, which is uh, one of these so-called temples of the millions of years, uh, which hmm. were temples built on the uh, I believe the west bank of the Nile. Across this one is is across from from um, from Luxor, I believe. And uh, this is aligned uh, in the direction of the moon relative to the Bering Sea Pole. So, so in other words, if this hypothesis is correct, when the North Pole was in the Bering Sea 130,000 years ago, this site could have been a lunar temple. The originals, not saying that the site that's there now, but the original site digging right. down that, you know. Right. This, this Foundation, is a, early yeah, foundation. The basic assumption in before Atlantis is that that humankind tends to build over pre-existing structures that there's whether it's for convenience or a reverence of what existed prior to that um for whatever reason that there's this tendency and we find this throughout it's this ample evidence uh, archaeologists have found it throughout mesoamerica in fact crop fields are still planted in directions and patterns that predated uh, uh you know the uh the spanish you know so there are patterns that are set up and and so perhaps by digging deeper in some of these sites we might find evidence based on the depth of things because right the right. deeper things are then you can begin to date things based on uh on the uh, on the different strata what the age could be so right. uh, a lot of possibilities yes indeed and especially if it represents a place for the moon and again everything might be encoded and that it might have a whole solar system and even universe mapped around the globe or something as a signature representation of right the cosmos of the stars does that make sense probably yeah. far up there but yeah i mean there 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 are you know there there are theories that uh you know that the pyramids um in in egypt are you know or correlated with the stars in uh the, the belt of orion uh that certain star that is uh that uh, number of temples in um, Cambodia around a Angkor Wat are correlated with stars in the constellation Draco, which, mm -hmm. you know, Draco is important. It's a serpent and, you know, serpent um, motif is present in a lot of uh, ancient uh, mythologies. And, you know, one of the stars in in, um, in Draco, Thuban, was the former pole star back uh, around 3000 BC. So, um yeah, I mean, it's it's sort of like you know, mythology is is like a, is like the breadcrumbs that uh, I think are leading us in certain directions, and if we can combine it with science, scientific methods, uh, we, that might help us to, you know, piece it all together and figure out uh, the whole, figure out what it all means. Especially when you have data that can uh, help make those theories not so theoretical. There's a foundation there for that. Okay. Right. So that's pretty interesting. Again. Um, we are up on uh, coming up to that that break now. Uh, is there any way you wanted to go before we go to the break, or you just want to go to break and come back? So, uh, yeah, we could uh, we we could take a short break. So, just to to summarize, we kind of been talking about you know stuff on Earth, ancient mysteries going back maybe further than uh, mainstream archaeologists uh, has us believe things became interesting. Where you know tens to hundreds of thousands of years, so. Um, you know, this raises the question, well, who came before us? Were they previous races of 
you know, humans, other human species? Were they ancient aliens? You know, who were they? So maybe we could talk about a little about that uh, next hour. Excellent. Uh, and that's something good to ponder on at the moment, everybody, because that's what brings the question into us. Again, pre-Adamite, pre-Adam, you know, uh, get all Bible-ish. Well, no, there's part of history, even before then, of what went on on the earth. Genesis 1 and 2, between that, there's a lot of history and all that represents, and we're seeing, again, all these techno-signatures and whatever you want to call them, things you can trip over, things you can see, things that are covered up, they didn't even know were artificial structures from the past, like Bosnia, for instance. Uh, but, again, this is where it's leading the, the, to the who. And never mind the why, that could come later, but the who at the question, I think, is a major aspect, because, uh, as all of you know, and Dr. Mark knows, the big theme with ancient aliens, ancient, well, how do you know it's not ancient humans? We got a whole bunch of shit here on Earth. Again, look at what he's showing here. Uh, again, we can't explain. We weren't around supposedly for, but, but, you know, we have found skulls of various, well, whatever you would like to call them. <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't have kids look, coming out looking like that. I don't know anyone else that does unless they got some type of bone disease or something. And even then, these are different in the densities of bone structure. And I, I think it's all interesting. And it falls into even Lloyd Pye, the star child, I think Dr. Mark could appreciate, of how relevant all of this could be from our past. Again, like I said, though, and hopefully he appreciates this, because that would be a signature of them being spacefaring. They they know, they like, again, the North Pole and everything. But think about that, everything, the alignments, previous poles. <laughs> you know, uh, what better way than to mark it out unless they had a knowledge of the Earth and where to put something, not just by using a plumb line on the ground and a guess. And then something higher than an airplane. But that's something to think about. And, you know, but I'm crazy. I mean, think of the enormities. I mean, this is all fascinating stuff. Again, beforeatlantis.com, www.beforeatlantis.com. And, again, click on his book there at his site or on the facesofmars.com page where it's always at. Click on that link, get his book, and then get, get the continued book free online at, again, beforeatlantis.com. And uh, we are back with our guest, Dr. Mark Carlotto. And, uh, yeah, that's really all fascinating stuff. And, again, the implications of the who is, I think, crucial on the board. That I think most people, especially mainstream science, are afraid to touch, let alone what we see up there on Mars and its implications, even with its oddballish, hominidish face, if, for those of us that see what it is, again, opinions vary. I see artificiality, and I guess that's what counts to me, But and it makes a reality. It's just in time when science will come to that point, obviously, but yet they don't land there. You know, but maybe the commie Chinese will to poke at us. And But other than that, I hope it blows up. But other than that, thank you, Dr. Mark, uh, for being patient. We are back with us. But... Uh, isn't that an amazing question, or is that always on your mind, maybe behind the scenes of yourself and, and thought that helps you pursue all this, of the who, right? And and what? Because like you said, previous civilizations, various hominids, various species, again, like the scripture says, you know, uh, 
generation, uh, you know, passes away after generation, but the earth abideth forever. You know, he, he wipes the earth, and whatever's here or comes here does this thing. So that opens the door. Again, no, I'm not afraid. Who's behind the door? Dr. Mark Colato, who's behind that door? <laughs> uh, maybe it's the Watchers. <laughs> oh, that's not something to laugh at. I like to, to let people know real quick before we go on. Who are the watchers? Well, you know, you're you're making biblical references, and uh, a lot of religious traditions talk about, um, you know, um, these, you know, you might call them gods or demigods that you know have been sent to Earth uh, to sort of run things, you know, help us out from time to time, and. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the Book of Enoch, right, talks about, um, there's many references to, I think there's like a thousand references to to Watchers and to uh, their role in, in human affairs. Um, of course, it's, you know, quite controversial, whether it's, you know, to be taken literally or, or you know, metaphorically, but, um, you know, it raises the question, you know, there might be others other than our than ourselves right uh and and perhaps they're not extraterrestrial in the sense that you know we have been thinking about things since really since von donegan von donegan mm-hmm. was the one that introduced the idea of ancient aliens um that uh you know how do you explain this uh you know how do you explain these archaeological enigmas on earth let let alone if this stuff on mars is real how do you explain that so right. um so I think that's you know that's that's where we're at. I, I figured I'd put up uh, a picture of Mars just to sort of change the uh, change the direction of our conversation a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, um, so that uh, Viking view of the shade from shading you did of the Cydonia region there, right, with the face, and there's the to the bottom left there. That's the what's known as the city square area or the other structure yeah. pyramids, DM. Uh, half of it on the far right corner yeah yeah i think i have um amazing uh, these are some stereo images i did the dnm where you can cross your eyes and you can see it in 3d now this this goes back uh i was doing this uh god i was doing this close to 40 years uh, 35 years ago it's crazy <laughs> Been known that long and even before, according to Kirby Comics and Legend and Lore. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, you know, this stuff now is, it's become folklore. So, you know, there's, uh, you know, Michael Malin referred to uh, what we were doing as this cottage industry, you know, people like Hoagland writing, uh, writing this stuff to, you know, basically uh, to earn a living. But, you know, it's, in, in, in all fairness, you know, we, we just sort of see, saw things differently than, than Michael Malin and and, and Malin ain't doing no data analysis on it, like the work that has been put into it by all of you. Well, you know, we we, you can't we just, have, that's not in the data. You can't just say something because you don't want to accept it. Okay, well, please show me. Holy crap! Look and tell me what I'm looking at here. <laughs> well, so so this is you know this is a thing that I mean, in all fairness to to NASA, um, right? Because like let me just go to uh do we have 
uh, this. And again, people, while he's doing this, think about how many missions and probes and international uh, Padre is up there around Mars and on Mars and whatnot. And uh, so, again, it wouldn't just be <laughs> for nothing. That's all yeah. I'm saying. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's it's the whole the whole Mars base. Uh, it's it's you know, there are, people have written books. Though I'm sure there'll be more books written about it. It's it's a very <laughs> interesting controversy. Um, uh, and you know, this when this picture was taken, this is this uh, one of the Mars investigators, Lon Fleming, called it the cat box image because it looks like something uh, you know you might a cat might have scratched out in a, in a yeah, box but that of better. That looks better than the cat box image from how they processed it. That looks better. That's the raw version there, correct? That's right. Yeah, yeah. That even looks better <laughs> compared to what they gave out. I was right. like, oh, my God. and everyone's like, well, why does it look? It's at an angle. It was during its arrow breaking or toward its end, and so it's not uh, a nader view. Nader means straight on. It was off nader, correct, Doctor Mark? Exactly. You're exactly exactly right, and. Uh... You know, so what they came up with was something that was, uh, see, you know, something like this, which when you contrast stretch it, it's like, well, what am I looking at here? I uh, still face even then. Okay. Well, you know, and, and those of us, I remember, you know, talking to John Brandenburg and Vince DiPietro that, that night, and we were talking about this. It's like, yeah, this is still a pretty remarkable image, even though on the news, you know, we were listening to, uh, I don't know who it was at the time, um, not Walter Cronkite, Roger Mudd, you know, saying that, you know, this, the controversy was, uh, has been settled once and for all by this, this yeah. one. It's like, no, it has been. Policy. Yeah. That was the policy public, uh, spin on it. Uh, for, you know, and well, we see through that. And especially now we have up told, but 12 or 13 of MRO context, one high rise, but what am I saying wrong there? Dr. Mark, we have about, 12 to 13 MRO context imagery that has the face in it, right? Yeah. And only one high rise. That's all I'm saying. There's, a, yeah. there's something wrong with that And I'm going to actually go. I'm going to. I'm jumping around here. Um, nope, sir. So here's here's the here's the high rise image, or the, uh, this is Themis, I think actually. But you know, this is uh, you Looks know like global surveyor. Uh, or if, uh, or if it was, the MRO, it's all down. You, 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 MRO, right. you can really zoom in on it. <laughs> it would be yeah, huge. It's, it's, it's a, it was a good image I used for shape and shading because, uh, you know, you need uh, certain lighting. And right. um, you can actually get a pretty good idea, you know, of the three-dimensional shape. And I always felt that this, this side here um, looked the way it did because it had collapsed and then there was erosional processes, sand building up, you know, it's like if you know, imagine, um, you know, you have your prevailing wind and I don't really know where it is in Cydonia, but if it were like west to east, sand is blowing over something. It's like here in the northeast, you have a snowstorm. The snow always builds up on the on the uh, leeward side. So right. on the side on the other side of the house here. Um, be protected. It all piles up, right, away from the wind. And so I think that may be similar to what, you know, has happened over this these countless eons on Mars. Um, but what's interesting about this is that even as, as eroded as it is, when, and this is a, 
This is a simulated view I did using shape and shading. And it still remarkably looks like a face um, from the ground. So if this was intended to be, even, you know, whether it was intended to be viewed from above or even at ground level, mm -hmm. uh, it's a pretty remarkable uh, visual effect, uh, even to this day, as bad as, as badly as it's work a work pretty good. It's still pretty it's good. It's a work of art. And in order to create that huge work of art, they had to know the understanding of every point and position of light that would come in from every angle at various times of the year or 100 years or 1,000 years. Uh, right. For what that light would help bring out of its art. You see, Dr. Mark, I hear what you're saying, but I'm crazy. I, I, I see a completely art-sculpted work of holy crap. And, and in that sense, based on your model, there it still matches because it goes it would have to be with the mastery like around the other structures on the earth there they use the sun also for its tattooed imprint of certain things that could be seen at certain times because look how what we're seeing there alone when we could see the eye the mouth the transition of the shadow side that was still brings out its signature its imprint of purpose Right. That's not, you know, and it's not just on one part of the face or it's all over it. I mean, you know, if it was just on one part of it, oh, that's a coincidence on two. But when it works in unison and the way that it flows, you can see that shadow line and move it right away to angle the sun. Now, what I would love to see is if you put the face in different position of a sun angle of a different time of its orbit or tilt, uh, what those various effects would show does that make sense and is there yeah. a way to test that yeah i mean uh well i mean certainly you with, know. that's why i'm asking as crazy as i am well you know i i i have this app and you've you've used it s sfx sfx oh, I, I don't have mac i wish you would make a <laughs> i could use zero windows but i have a buddy that does and also the the man himself <laughs> need me thank you right and and uh, but but you know it basically what that can do is it takes a, a an image and I I I process Mars images and images of the Moon and you you dial in the sun angle and it creates this 3D map and then once you have the map then you can view it in different ways so it's just you know like what you're describing, um, and, but you know that answers part of the question the other the other part is well it, was this done. Is it is it is it uh you know what do they call it is it enigmatic ge geology is it just some random ge you know some strange geology that created this shape, um, and you can certainly determine the the probability of that, but is it you know is it significant? It's you know the problem is Gary that we th we've never encountered anything other than our own handiwork anywhere else, and so we don't really have a point of reference. You know we can't. What? We do have the geometry. We a signature like I just seen the Stargate episode. I love Stargate SV one, don't you? But where they went to this one planet, they had to get out of the castle was falling, but it was a compendium of at least four different races they would come to. They press the buttons and you have atoms, stuff like that. And then you press on the thing and then something else would come up. And they started learning, hey, these elemental tables and, and atoms are oh, basically basic forms. I guess that goes back to what Sagan said. You would see it in, in its geometry. You know, obviously people would look for roads. Excuse me, goodbye. Uh, and but there, and that does that make sense? 
Yeah, and that's, you know, that's, I think that's the problem, um, you know, getting back to, um, <laughs> Sorry. getting back to, let me see if I have some pictures to help uh, show this. And, and I've been, I've this. Want to go, but this is relevant to where I think, you know, your new book is, and we want to get into that because, again, the who's behind the door question, people, but go ahead, Dr. Mark, you're rocking. Yeah, but my my uh, my network is it, it sucks here. I, my uh, yeah, I know the feeling. I don't have any bandwidth for some reason. It just it just kind of shuts down. I'm 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 actually I'm grateful that we still have a connection here. I should be very grateful about that. Uh, but um, so I, actually, I can just talk to this point, uh, and I'm sure as soon as I'm done, that this the the page will come up. But, you know, the thing that uh, NASA and, and Michael Malin, he was the, uh, the, the camera's, you know, the principal investigator of the camera uh, of MGS and then other missions as well. You know, he, he, his contention was that, okay, if there was a civilization on Mars, not only would we have this, these big formations, but there'd be, you know, there'd be the, um, the, uh, the, you know, the, the spoils, the, the piles of rocks, the, the, ah. the roads, the um, other, you know, indications that there was uh, some. Yeah, here we go. That's oh, he wasn't really following uh, Dr. Sagan's uh, <laughs> uh, advice. Well, he was he was pursuing a very, very much of a sort of a Western uh, reductionist thinking that. If there's a civilization, then all of these other parts have to be present. But that's all predicated on the idea that this was built by a technological civilization like our own. And Bingo. right. And so if, if it doesn't, if all the pieces don't match, then you just throw the whole thing out, which which isn't really valid. Uh, but that's well, that's Dr. what he did. Would you make the correlation then? I'm sorry. Interrupt. Okay. Would you make the correlation between then? Just a brief on real quick, the watchers aspect possibilities, even of what we're seeing there and here on Earth. But uh, any connection, not to say that, it, I mean, there's got to be some type, some type of connection. But God. OK, so so, yeah. So now we're kind of uh, fast forward from 35 years <laughs> ago now to this new book, this book I just published called Not of This World. And um, what perfect segue, huh? <laughs> yeah, you're 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 rocking there, Gary. Uh, it's it's um. So what what I say is this, and I'll just read this: uh, Is Elon Musk's vision of humankind becoming a multiplanetary species the next stage in human evolution? Are there aliens out there waiting to detect a warp signature or some other indication that we've reached an advanced stage of technological development and are ready to join them in a galactic federation, as in Star Trek? Or is reality something completely different? And um, uh, what 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 my trajectory is right now? What I'm looking at and my thinking is that reality is actually quite different from not only what the mainstream thinks, but what the mainstream uh, UFO and ancient um, mysteries communities think. You know that you know. In before Atlantis, we're not happy going back ten thousand years. We want to go back hundreds of thousands of years. And in terms which of UFOs, the data implies, which is what the data implies, right? Yeah. And in terms of UFOs, it's like uh, let's look at what's been going on with SETI and other developments in uh, you know astrophysics and the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. 
and let's revisit this whole UFO extraterrestrial question. That's kind of what I do in in um, in Not of This World. Uh, I take it's a different take on the whole idea of of uh, UFOs and what they might represent. Okay. Fair so enough. with that as a starting point, where where it ends is 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 speculation concerning these other. Uh, you know, the the others, um, meaning anything other than ourselves, you know, humankind or any offspring. Um, and, you know, nowadays, because we've become such a secular society, anything other than ourselves, it has to be aliens. It has to be extraterrestrials. Right. Right. Well, but, that's what has been in, in, in programmed into us, even in well, that. I mean, that's supposed to be a giggle factor. Uh, two advantages there. God. Yeah, I mean, you, you sort of joke about it. But, you know, the, the fact of the matter is that we're at the point now that the, the evidence that, that UFOs are now they're called UAP, Unidentified <laughs> Aerial Phenomenon, this stuff is real. I mean, the Navy came out last year and released these videos. And basically, they're admitting, we don't know, we don't know what this stuff is. And... You know, I know people have talked for years about the Roswell crash and reverse engineering UFOs. And, you know, supposedly the Air Force has some new plane that uses anti-gravity technology. And there's all this all this stuff out there. But it, it also appears that there's a fundamental aspect to this phenomenon that is just way beyond anything anyone can comprehend or even articulate. And I think it goes back. I think it goes back to the Bible. I think, you know, the stories that, you you know, in, in the book of Ezekiel and yeah. uh, the book of Enoch, they, they talk about these these events, these experiences that, you know, Von Donegan and the ancient alien communities interprets as, well, these were just, uh, you know, ancient astronauts. Well, if these were ancient astronauts and the galaxy was full of these extraterrestrial civilizations, then we should have been able to detect some evidence of them uh, in, in, in a number of ways. And our friend, you know, Dr. John Brandenburg, you know, talks about the principle of mediocrity, right? That we're not special, that we are, we humankind are typical. Uh, we're, you know, in the bell curve of civilizations, we're somewhere in the middle that there's civilizations out there that are more advanced and civilizations less advanced. And you would argue, well, maybe some civilizations don't use radio waves anymore or any kind of, you know, radio frequency transmission, maybe everything. Maybe they've evolved to the point of being telepathic or psychic or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and so we're not going to detect their signals because they don't have any. But according to the principle of me mediocrity, if it's if it's true and there's a lot of of, of others like us out there there's going to be someone out there that has invented cell phones and TVs and radios and are emitting. A match, yes, the possibilities. Yes. Uh, we, yeah. we should pick up something familiar, just like I'm sure they're picking us up and maybe even far better than we, they could pick up a lot of other places, even a various signatures. Right. Right. But we haven't. Right. We have not. We've been looking arguably you know, so they tell us. Remember, we have those uh, FRBs. Uh, you know, pretty amazing, Doctor Mark. The what? Those FRBs. Those uh, those uh, those uh, signals being detected periodically, uh, and 
that uh, I think that's what they're called. Listeners of the show can appreciate. We go up over it once in a while. Uh, bursts. Oh. And, uh, yeah, and that they have recurred again over an amount of time. Uh, certain areas of the, at least I guess, looking into the Milky Way or beyond, however that's thought. It's, it's fascinating. It might be something you might want to look into, but yeah, I don't no, know. Yeah, I, I, I know there's there's been... Uh, People have speculated that some of these signals uh, might be ex- might be intelligent, uh, but I'm just talking about um, right. <laughs> something that is it just you know something you receive the signal. It's there's obviously some message there. There's speech. There's video. There's some structure right. in the in the signal, and it's demonstrably not from this not from Earth. You know, it's like the movie Contact. Right. That's such a great movie. Yeah. Um, very thought-provoking and maybe trying to reveal some of those you know how movies are yeah you know it's it's funny who wrote that <laughs> yeah so i mean it was a real concepts and you know that to me i don't know man i'm not a scientist but my brain gets rocking and racking it and rolling its gears and i i could glimpse things but i can't you know, I'm not a number side type person. I'm a more, that's why with me and Mars and what I see in Mike Madness, I'm of, of the artistic view, not autistic, artistic view. But I'd love to t- do that to test with autistics. Uh, that's actually, that would be a great experiment, but that's neither here nor there. On what I see looking down and what to look for, because I see the geometry in the art. So that's why, you know, I can, my, me myself, without any expertise or, education on the progress uh i didn't go that far in school graduate of high school but it is what it is but uh learning these things i could i i say yeah i could relate to carl sagan's which tells me he must have knew more than what he was because that was like a, a finger pointer you know, yeah, you know the geometry don't expect you know what life is like you said as you know it and then that brings into these UAPs, UFOs, because like in my madness, sir, and I'll shut up in a second, but I think it's relevant. They have the ability to carve into planetary surfaces, whether on a on a feature or on a whole hemisphere or even an entire planet. And I see that even here on Google Earth, uh, on the oceans, if I'm to take any of that, of what they allow us to see there. Over the years, I have seen them whiten out many things, especially around the northern countries of Russia and all that, and South America. I mean, so that's why I don't even ask them questions anymore. It's like, why bother? Because a couple of the spots, you know, next thing they uploaded new stuff, it was was a crappy image and whited out or blued out. So you can see what's under the water. Um, Now... That's why I say someone's handiwork from being above, whether I'm correct in my madness or not. They had aerial views. Therefore, if you you could have the technology to go around planets, do things, and if you're at such a level, you can modify planets in the extreme, but in the least, you could uh, lay out something for which could be carved from above. Yeah. I mean, it's not for. It, it sounds nuts now. Even Hoagland once said, "I can't believe I'm saying this." Now, you know, Gabby, it's good science, just not yet. And I was like, "What the f? <laughs> you know, what kind of answer is that?" I mean, but then, you know, as I mature more in this work, I understand a little more now. You know, I'm wild, but not as wild as I used to be. But uh, with a respect for this, you know, and that's why it's so important in the work that you do. 
And I think you're being led. Like I said to you last time, you, you know, you think you're just jumping around. I think you're going where you're supposed to go. But, all right, boom. So this brings us to these things. Again, who's behind the door? That's where so, you're leading us, right? So, so, the question. Yeah, just, 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 to go, just to comment on what you just said, you know, uh, another one of my favorite movies is uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Mm-hmm. And you see how this this phenomenon uh, attracted all kinds of people with all sorts of different uh, skill sets and and ways of seeing the world. You know, artists and and all sorts of other all sorts of people. Like Richard Dreyfus, was he was he crazy? Was he mad? No, he was just uh, you know this is how he internalized the whole thing. So I think yeah, I think it affects uh, I went through people. The same as Brookings was right. <laughs> may, well, you know, may. I, I don't, you know, I don't think it. Actually, I don't think Brookings is right. I, I think. No, in that regard, the the discovering scientists, like you said, you had to come out of the the shell that is normally there. You said is beyond ego, and you take in the new data, which then made changes, which actually made it better for you, right? And, and think, the work that you're showing. And I think I think most people probably would be okay with with a lot of these ideas. Yes, I think most people believe this stuff to be true instinctively. I mean, you take a poll; most people believe in the reality of, of ETs or something beyond beyond uh, Earth. You know, whatever that may be. I right. think Brookings and these other studies were simply used as mechanisms for the for the government to yes. to control basically to control the the game, the the dialogue with you know the conversation. I think we're mature enough, and that's what I don't. I didn't see in the Brookings was the what if, right? They were, you know, they got to look at it from more than one angle. They looked at it for control and also potential panic, but it also laid the hints that there must come a time, and I believe we're in that time where we must be told. Well, you know, it's it's funny the way they say that. It's like, well, it's likely that in twenty years we'll we'll learn of this or that, but they're careful to say what it is. And it's almost like they're just they're just kind of cooking. They're just kind of cooking the books to be, to to for them. It's it's given them sort of a backdoor to say, well, we're not totally eliminating the possibility, but you know, right. it's sort of like this. What SETI's all about now? They they've they've um they've they've changed their tune a little bit. I think they realize that they've put all their eggs in this basket of looking for you know ETs and you know in in faraway galaxies, and it's it just hasn't worked out. And so now they're looking for techno signatures in the solar system, and you know, and they're they're open to the idea of looking for techno signatures on Mars. Um, we found but, them, but we, but yeah, but it's it's funny they they published this report um, proposal for it's a NASA proposal written by NASA and the SETI community, and if you do a search on NASA and techno signatures, this thing will come up, and they they totally you know they totally poo poo. The face on Mars, and you know the the uh, the the these so-called discoveries that have been made so far, and they leave it to their own devices that they're going to discover something on Mars. Well, okay, thank you very much. I think we already have, but um, it's just you know it's just the mainstream doing what they do. They want to they 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 they're controlling the game, and they want to control the conversation. It's like okay, fine, let them do that. You know, life is too short. Um, 
But anyway, right. research goes on as long as there's data and stuff for me to look. I don't listen to anything. I know what they're where they're coming from. Turtlenecks now pay speed policy agenda. So that leads me to freedom, like you said, as be, people being outside. Because if we were can't bite the hand that feeds you, they'll take away your tenure. They'll fire you or whatever, unless it's acceptable to what they're willing to reveal. Snail pay speed at a time, right? So let me uh, so so let me let me take a little bit of a detour. You're talking yeah. about freedom and information. What's so great about the internet uh, and you know cell phones and all this information technology we have is that people are with their cell phones they're they're taking pictures of things that can't be explained. Uh, I I just posted an article today on notofthisworldufo.com that is. Um, a, uh, a, a brief study I did of a video taken by uh, a woman in Texas. Her name is Amanda U uh, Ewing. Yeah, Ewing. That um, she was, you know, she was just looking, uh, she was bird watching. She's looking, uh, taking, looking up at birds and she saw them flying around in a strange way. And then she picked up her cell phone and started to shoot video. And when she looked at it, it didn't seem at first that it showed anything, just clouds. But then she noticed these, these, like specks of light, maybe they were birds, but they were flying around, flying at speeds that were just like literally zooming across the sky in like a fraction of a second. Wow. And and streaks of light. And uh, so she asked me to take a look at it. And I just posted. Oh, yeah, I just posted, <laughs> yeah it's, I just posted this uh, article, this analysis. And, um, you know, it, it, it strikes me that um, I think she captured data that perhaps is not all that different from what the Navy pilots were encountering, um, you know, in the in their Tic Tacs. Now, I'm not saying that these are images of Tic Tacs, but they show um, objects that are moving extremely fast. Um, I believe they are. They're not, uh, you know, camera artifacts or glints or anything like that, but they're real objects. They seem to be obeying, you know, laws of physics in, in terms of the way they're moving, but they're moving just way too fast. And um, so, you know, to the point you were making before, um, we could maybe talk about this article some more. But the point I wanted to make is that people are beginning to collect data with their cell phones because their cell phones are pretty, pretty impressive sensors. Right. They have not only uh, cameras, but they also have magnetometers and you can do all sorts of things with them. And by sharing the information now, it almost doesn't matter what the government thinks and does uh, or what the mainstream, um, what NASA thinks or does, because people have their own data and they're building their own cases. And the case um, is, is, is compelling that there really is something that cannot be explained. And, you know, again, uh, I think uh, case in point is the Navy released last year of the Tic Tacs with the statement basically saying that, you know, we're releasing these because uh, there's been, you know, they've been discussed and, you know, we don't, we don't really have any, we don't really know what they are. I'm paraphrasing. Um, and, uh, and so people are beginning to step in. And I think the science of, of UFOs is, 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 is stepping up. People are really beginning to look at the stuff. Like it's not, it's, it's, you know, it used to be that, hey, this has to be a hoax. Let's prove that it's a hoax or that it's not a hoax. That was like what everyone like would spend all their time doing. Now it's like, let's look at this and, and try to estimate what are the flight characteristics? How fast are they moving? What um, what might be going on here? And I think it's leading us, I think, in some new directions. And I think those new directions are away from the idea of aliens uh and uh sort of conventional you know flying saucers 
Although mm-hmm. that seems to be a real thing too. I know it's complicated, but this is this is something that seems to be prevalent, and uh, people are beginning to pick this up. Um, and this, you know, this this post is an indication, I think, of what's out there. And I think if more people are observant, they may start noticing a lot of stuff like this that could be useful in building a case that hey, there is some really subtle phenomenon that's happening all around us every day that we can't really explain. What is there? A, is there some other reality out there that is that is um, interacting with our own? You know, I mean, physicists have talked about parallel universes. Well, maybe the evidence is not, uh, we don't have to wait for them to turn on the CERN, you know, the big uh, uh, particle accelerator in Switzerland and discover the God particle. Maybe maybe there is actually evidence around us if we are very careful and, and discerning and we study the, the subtlest things in nature and... Uh, because maybe maybe the evidence is all around us. That's kind of the direction I'm going right now with some of this research. So this article is called South Texas UAP, and it's on uh, notofthisworldufo.com, which is a website that goes oh, with the uh, so you, 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 I mean, that, that yeah. opinion is where that is likely rather than coming from say somewhere close like the moon or mars again it's implicating sorry could you say that again you you you're you're it was kind of dropping out and garbled in the beginning Can you hear me? yeah i'm good now go ahead oh uh, yeah all right uh that was that? oh so is that where you're uh you you believe the data is leading you that they're coming from some other dimension rather than a place rather than millions of light years away, but like the moon, Mars, especially connecting to that implication amongst the other signatures, but <laughs> that it's coming from another dimension. The yeah. UAPs. Yeah. I, I, I think it's, I think, uh, you know, I think Jacques Vallée was the one who was the first to propose uh, the idea that UFOs were, they were like holograms that had mass. They're, they're from, he called them interdimensional UFOs. And I think, um, I, I I think that's a that's a pretty good um, hypothesis because it it, um, it 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 can explain how something can accelerate. Well, not that it really explains it, but you know, right. how do we explain something that as is 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 not moving and then in a fraction of a second is going you know thirty times the speed of sound and there's no shock wave, there's no sonic boom. Um, yeah, the, the G forces involved. It'd be like you know thousands of Gs, right? Would crush right. not not just a human, but any kind of machinery, any kind of physical instrumentality, any any anything, any mechanism would be crushed with such accelerations. So obviously something else is going on. And um, but you know, and, and then you know the the main then some physicists are actually stepping up and saying, well, you know, perhaps um, they figured out a way of creating a warp bubble. Which is, you know, the idea motivated in Star Trek that you create your own little bubble of space time and you can do all kinds of stuff in that that seems to violate the laws of physics, but it doesn't in in, in your own space time. You know, I mean, that that's, I think, a really interesting area of, of investigation. Yeah. Um, but I think it should, you know, we really need to devote some some resources, some serious resources. Uh, what I'm showing um, here, I don't know if you can see it. These, yes, a uh, few lines going by real quick. It's an animation, I think. Yeah, right? these speaks are—they're really, yeah, they're really small. 
Uh, here's one peer. Uh, Are you familiar here, with Dr. Wilbur Allen? What's that? Are you familiar with Dr. Wilbur Allen's uh, photography work of these things? These will look like things that he would be seeing. Uh, you should uh, check him out. I'll send you his contact if it's cool with you. Yeah, that'd be cool. That'd, that'd be great. Anyway, these are some examples. The, this is moving. This is a this is one thirtieth of a second. So this is the video frame rate. It's one thirtieth of a second. So I have one object moving from here to here. This is the this is the third one, and then this, this is a time exposure of all three. So and those so are the actual size of the objects. That's not like uh, you know a, a speed thing signature there. That's they look oblo cigarish for lack no, of I, a better term. No, I think I think it's a speed thing. Uh, um, okay. They're moving so fast that the camera can't resolve them as a point. Here's right. some other ones here up here that are difficult to see. Yeah, I was trying to see that there. I don't see. Here's, that. here's a time oh, exposure. Can you see oh, that? That's how you deal with that? Okay. So video, and then I have the uh, the time exposure. I have another one up here. Wow. Anyway, check check that out. Um, yeah. So, I mean, there's, I think yeah. people are starting to collect some really interesting data that, that are it's certainly worth analyzing. And, um, and uh, I don't know where you go with it. Because uh, it's not, I really don't think it's of this world. I don't think it's, uh, I don't think this is the Air Force doing uh, some experiment. Um, I think it's right. something else. And the reason I think that is because this phenomenon, if you look at, you know, you, you, you know, go back talk, talking about biblical references and, Right. Actually, references in other traditions. Um, you know, the uh, the Vedic um, you know, Vedic texts also speak of similar um, uh, powers, avatars that that uh, you know, that that have come to Earth. Um, you know, th this phenomenon is, has existed for for thousands of years. So, you know, it's obviously you know the Air Force wasn't around three thousand years ago, or, right? <laughs> um, unless you want to say, well, they they also invented time travel. Um, Wow. But, you know, it starts getting a little wonky at that point. Um, right. So, you know, given that this has been around for so long and, you know, in all fairness to all the work that all these UFO investigators have done, we're no closer to understanding what this is all about than we were in the 50s. You know, after, you know, Roswell and and um, and, uh, and the Arnold UFO, I mean, yeah, there are people that say, well, the government has all these this deep black uh, research and stuff going on. Um, I, I don't know. I I'm, I'm a little I'm, I'm a little cynical in that. I feel that if it were technology out there that was something that could be commercialized, developed, that, you know, we'd be we'd have uh, anti-gravity cars you know, floating around, you know. Right. And right. We're at the beginning stages. In our timeline-wise, right, in our reality and lifespans, from the transistor, since the transistor, which supposedly, again, they at the Roswell, Colonel Corso, you're familiar with that, yeah. correct? Yep. Mm -hmm. And uh, so they're either more advanced from that point if we attribute and take into account that as being fact, as Colonel Corso stated, uh, they're hoarding. And we're only getting things of which 
obviously. Well, like he said, though, it, it don't happen overnight. You got to get them into these labs. No, you guys get the patents. We want what we want, but you guys create it. I don't care what bullshit story you come up with. You know, get it out there to society. And now we have the industrialization of that. But I don't think it's moving too far ahead for the public. These cell phones, everything we have now, integrated circuit chips, Damn, they, they, what we have now, they had 30 years ago, uh, you know, for themselves, if you want to consider underground bases and all that, potentially. I mean, all that's open, or, or is all that, you know, frivolous thinking? I, I, I don't know. I, just, I, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not saying that that's, that stuff doesn't exist. I, I just don't think it's the whole story, and I think that, right. that, 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 that the unknown, it, it's it's not an unknown with a small U. It's an unknown with a, with a big U. And that big unknown is is something that goes beyond extraterrestrials and you know and ancient aliens. It it actually and I think it encompasses the kinds of stuff that was written about in the Bible and these these old you know religious texts. But there you know I'm not there. There are many people that are expert and they they you know they've researched that and they 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 have much to say about that. Um, where I'm at in this, in, in my research here in this book is by, um, is by really trying to establish a um, uh, sort of a plausible argument that uh, I don't know, I don't know what it is, but I know that it's, you know, if you have, if you, ha if you have A and not A, a I know I, if you have a hot dog, I know it's not a hot dog. I don't know what it is. It uh, could be the visual signature in our skies now. Of what you're going over with, even in your research from the past of his signatures, they would know it. Maybe it's them. Like I said, for being judging where we're at now, we're potentially spacefaring. If we have really had balls and the intent and goals, we could be out there in a big way. Uh, right? Uh, so we had that capability and with the type of that engineering technological scale. Well, we certainly could with such a mass effort. We could do that now. And we can't duplicate what represents flying through these skies as well as what's here on the Earth. But I think that, again, that's the signature of them be, could be spacefaring. How do we know it's not the previous civilizations? Well, they're still here. Or at least they come back. Because I know maybe, and I don't know if we go away from the Earth for a while. Hear me out, Dr. Mark, as crazy as I am, if you will. <laughs> we, we go away. We may not, over the, after a certain time, be able to physically come back to our planet, especially if we have to adapt under conditions. Well, you've seen that movie Wally, I hope, uh, or uh, you know, and or adapt to some other planet. Whether we may have to genetically modify ourselves to those adaptions in time or not, or if you find a place ideal, or unless you control the gravity in the environment. Now, but maybe they couldn't come back to the Earth, or maybe they could. I mean, all, uh, what do you think of those possibilities, or is that kind of like where you're leaning with some of this? Well, I mean, to help my own sanity. Yeah, I mean, I think. See, I think they're all plausible, but the the problem is, Gary, is that like, okay, I'm showing here. This is the starship. Uh, man, yeah, I just love this. I had to make it. Oh, I did too. It was a shame it blew up, but it blew up later, and this was a success finally. Hopefully well, the following ones will all will be successful with standing too, for obvious reasons. <laughs> well, it, it didn't. If you if you if you listen to SpaceX, it didn't blow up. It was just subject to an unscheduled disassembly. <laughs> what? No, I'm serious. That's that's what they call it. They don't say it blew up. They said it. They had an unscheduled disassembly. 
<laughs> well, that's awesome. I know. You know. It's, it's great. <laughs> I love it. But but anyway, so my, my answer uh, where, where I was going is that, you know, this is this is our advanced technology now, you know, 50 years after Apollo, more 60 years. Uh, you know, we're still we still have chemical rockets. You know, right. Starship is still a chemical rocket. We are still I mean, ion propel, propulsion, nuclear propulsion. These are still talked about as far off now as they were, you know, 50 years ago. Um, right. But um, the reason I, I'm, I don't think there's anything like this out there is because we haven't found anything like it. There should be there should be some artifacts. There should be some some space, you know, uh, rogue spacecraft that we found on Titan or on Phobos or on Mars or the moon that we didn't put there that someone else did. Um, you know, this was this was sort of the uh, this was the speculation back in the 60s or even before that. That's, you know, Sagan believed that, you know, the, there might be artifacts on the uh, alien artifacts on the backside of the moon because that would be a good place for, you know, aliens to set up a base to observe Earth. Well, you know, we we haven't really found that sort of the, that sort of thing anywhere in the solar system. And you know, getting back to SETI, we we don't have any radio signals, so that's why I think we're pretty we're pretty unique that there aren't others out there like us, at least not in the physical universe. I think the diversity of of the intelligence, or, the phenomenon that we're talking about, is is coming from they're from other other realities that are not purely physical um yeah right right and all the uh you know rule out possibilities and you got to start considering the other aspects of the reality exactly but uh that also depends on the scale of technology we and they are at you know did they did they surpass let's say because you know we have seen some from far away being sent to us Remember, we're looking over across years, depending how far you are, to millions of years. Signals might have already passed us up, as they had, as you know what I'm saying. Does that make sense? Yeah. And, no, I mean, yeah, and 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 they, and you know, and and that's uh, the way the SETI scientists, you know, would phrase it is well, uh, you know, absence of evidence doesn't imply evidence of absence. absence. Uh, you know, in other words, that they could still be out there. We just haven't picked it, picked, picked them up yet. So they're going to continue to listen and look. But right. you know what I'm suggesting is that maybe we don't put all, all our eggs in that basket. And and and, right. and certainly they're not because they're now starting to look, considering the possibility of techno signatures on Earth, on yeah. Mars, in other you know in the solar system. So I think you kind of you need to need to cast a wider net. Yes, indeed. And like I say, I see techno signatures all over Mars. You know. But my question is, what happened first, the chicken or the egg? You know, did they, in my madness, did they sculpt up Mars before the events, or was the event came after, or did they come over and repair when needed? Because uh, I believe, again, if Mars is utilizing the light, it, it could be sending off signatures, techno signatures alone, just by the way it's sculpted at different various positions from outside the solar system, the planet could report to you as it was if you know how to pick up its signals if that makes sense whether it's flashes or however else it would be that that if it's seen able to be seen they can know the status of at least mars position than the position of the other planets and maybe what's going on i don't know to me or at least to some degree with that in mind 
and greater things that I can't fathom because, you know, but to me, that's not far-fetched because that's evident, in my opinion, it's evidence is seen by the face being there, being, being beaming out to us, and we're on a much shorter scale between planets. Think about what some other civilization could be picking up outside the solar system if this thing is doing what I believe it may be. And I know you've heard reports over the years by the Japanese and others spread over like 30, 40-year intervals, sir, of mysterious flashes coming off from the surface. One of them in Aram Chaos, which is really a geometric shape as well. Uh, but I'm crazy. But but how I predicted that based on what I see. You know, I call it the Lowellian factor. Uh, they weren't canals. It's really the sculptedness of the planet. Uh, but depending on how you can view it, and if they have the ability, and if it does throw off signals, even on, maybe our moon, I don't know. In my opinion, the moon is kind of weird. It's, I think it's artificial, artificially placed. Uh, I know I'm not alone, so I'm safe to say that without being too crazy. But uh, I, I don't know. I don't know, Dr. Mark. So who would know? Whatever's flying around. Well, it has type of has, so, uh, unbelievability to it. You know what I mean? It's so it's so interesting. You know, you say you know the moon was put there on purpose. It's uh, and, and oh, people, okay. the scientists have said scientists have said that life would not exist on Earth, at least to the extent that it does today, without the moon. That the moon mm -hmm. is a is a stabilizing influence on uh, on Earth's um, on Earth's rotation. On, uh, and the, the cycles of, of, of uh, you know, monthly cycles and so forth, that so many things are synced to that. And without the moon, where could life, would life even be possible on Earth? So, you know, it's, it's like this whole, then you start getting into the whole intelligent design debate. And, um, you know, was it placed there? For what purpose? Um, well, you just said a big one themselves, but, you know, even Dr. Gill said, you know, and he agreed with me, they're, you know, Dr. Gill Levin, that they are um, adhering to the commandments of men, for one thing, and doctrines of men, not science, they're not following science, that life is universal, and I forgot the main point about this, but it was very important. Damn it. I hate when that happens, because my mind gets racing, and this is all fascinating discussions. I'm just <laughs> looking at that face turn, because, you know, it's just, it's a work of wonder. That's all I'm saying. It's it's a work yeah. of wonder, and I brain farted. Apologize. No, no I, hey, look, I mean, I, you get emotional, and uh, I, <laughs> I, 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 I often forget where, where I'm going. It's, it's usually when <laughs> you get really, really excited. And, and yeah. this, this is the kind of stuff that, you know, it's exciting and it's uh, and it's worth studying and it's worth uh, learning about. And, uh, I, you know, I, I'm grateful that we're able to do it. And yeah. um, it's, you know, it's um, it's it's a lot of it's a lot of fun. And um, it's nice not having a, uh, you know, having to rely on this. Uh, I, I feel bad for if you're if you're part of the scientific mainstream. Imagine being part of the scientific mainstream and really wanting to believe or believing, but not being able to really do what you want to do, you know, because you're constrained by the institution or the expectations. Um, that that that's certainly tragic. So maybe it's up to us who don't, you know, or not uh, beholden to any institution or tenure or any anything that we can you know, 
look at the stuff and um, pr propose some ideas. And, uh, you know, some of them may stick. But I, I agree. I don't think I think you said this early in the show. You know, we're gonna, when this stuff does uh, does pan out, we're, it's going to be long after we're gone. That's, no, that's a shame. That's a shame. If, uh, if Elon Musk works, hopefully, you know, in our lifetime, you know, but uh, like Dr. Brandenburg says, he's working for Uncle Sam now. They'll determine when he goes. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. So, uh, okay, so where where are we right now? Are we? Uh, we, we it don't have to be precise. Uh, if we go a little over, that's cool. I know you, there's still more things you want to get out about this. Uh, so unless, you know, it's up to you, sir, but we I'm, do appreciate your time. I'm actually uh, good. I'm just, I'm sort of running into the, it's late afternoon here and, um, I, I may have some interruptions in a few minutes. Um, okay. so I don't know, is this, is, might this be a good time to sort of wrap it up? Could we wrap it up now? Would that be all right? Or is it too, too early? Well, well, I, so basically Tell us more about your book yet. You still got to tell us when is it out now or where can we get it? I'll link to it on the show page, obviously. I'll link to these blogs. <coughs> um, okay. So okay yeah, thanks. Cool. Thanks for asking. So the, so the book is called Not of This World. Here's a, here's a copy of it. And uh, I'm proud to say that my daughter did the cover. She did the cover painting. She's an artist. Uh, actually, every, everyone in my family is an artist. I'm, I'm the I'm the oddball. Um, they look at me. It's like, what are you doing? <laughs> uh, but uh, my wife's an artist. My daughter. Uh, we have a lot of our kids and cousins and family are, are in the arts. Uh, anyway, so Katie, um, she did this, um, and this was actually at a time where, when I was writing the book, the title was UFOs in Space because my initial um, goal was to write up back in the uh, '90s. After the Mars investigation, I actually got into um, analyzing video from the space shuttle. And so actually one of the first posts here on the blog is um, is the STS-48 video. I'm sure you people have yeah. talked about that on your show. Um, and so the book was originally going to be about that. And then, uh, you know, I was starting to do some research. And then the Navy um, uh, UAP stuff came out. And then I started, you know, one thing leads to another. And I actually did a little work with Bruce McAbee back in the 90s. Uh, he had asked me about some of the Gulf Breeze photos. So I started pulling those out and and sort of uh, it, it the book sort of took on it, it acquired a life of its own, if you will. And so it became UFOs in space to UFOs, but something more. And uh, as as I started researching this more and more, I I. I, I really came to the conclusion. It was largely based on analysis of SETI. And um, this is uh, this this article here that was I posted a few weeks ago called Ancient Aliens from Earth. I actually say that I, I use the Drake equation, which is the sort of the, the rationale behind SETI. I use that to argue that UFOs are probably not extraterrestrial. And the, the whole reasoning there is that if you look at UFOs, uh, if UFOs are extraterrestrial spacecraft, um, it says, okay, we've got UFOs, but we don't have any signals. We don't have any, uh, no no alien uh, signals that have been received, but there's plenty of UFOs. I mean, there's no question there's something going on here. No, take me to your leaders. Yeah. So if that's the case, then 
then it, it sort of implies that it's according to the Drake equation that you know it's easier to build, you know, it's it was easier for us to build a radio than a spaceship. Yeah. It took us a long time to develop that technology for rocketry and so forth. And so if we're not exceptional, we're typical, then you would expect that we'd be picking up radio signals before we encountered any extraterrestrial spacecraft, UFOs, let's say. But right. it's just the opposite. So my my argument is because it violates this basic assumption, then um, it's likely that um, it's it's either it's either that it's easier to build a cell phone or it's easier to build a spaceship than a cell phone or uh, UFOs are not uh, probably not extraterrestrial. And that's what this article is about. And that was sort of the end of the book where I put all this together. And I look at the UAP, the Navy UAP data and Gulf Breeze and other other sightings. And it's like we've got indications of a technology that's just way beyond anything we have. We um, we lack any any basis. uh we haven't even detected, let's face it, we don't even have microbes on Mars yet, right? We're still looking for those. You think they're drone-ish or do you think there's uh, beings on them from these inner dimensions regardless? That given credence, obviously, to like, again, uh, you know, aliens, <laughs> people's stories. I think I think if it's if it's not strictly a physical phenomenon, then we're dealing with, with, uh, with entities that are not constrained by physical laws. So, you know, we're trying to understand in terms of our physics, you know, right. forces and accelerations and masses and things like that. But if they're not, if they're not, if they're more than, if they're, if they're physical, I mean, there's obviously a physical component because we can see them. You know, right. Jacques Vallée called UFOs um, holograms with mass. So they, they actually affect the environment. Um, and actually, part, also what I talk about on the book is I have a chapter on crop circles and UFOs. And uh, there's definitely a, a connection there. And you know, it's another one of these areas that the SETI people are, you know, they make fun of. But there's actually one case that I talk about, and I uh, have some uh, data, some graphics and results to show that that support the idea of UFOs, uh, in one case, actually creating a crop circle, which right. is a, it's a very controversial case uh, called Oliver's Castle um, in uh, Wilshire in england i see anyway. that is it and it's forming as this uh orb thing is like floating around it or zipping around it fast is that the one you're talking about that's the one i'm talking about yep and uh when you when you actually do some processing on that video uh -huh. and i and i present this in the book uh you actually see you actually see the crop circle um uh the result of the crop circle in that video and it matches an overhead view of the crop circle taken of that formation so yeah it's uh um and then there's you know there's other things there's other i analyzed some other space shuttle videos that were videos that show uh spherical objects literally materializing in space like not flying out of a shadow you know i go through that whole analysis is it just flying out of the sh sh uh, sh uh, the shadow cast by the shuttle is it a nice particle i look at all that stuff and these are clearly extraordinary events that occur um and that's beside STS-48 and STS-80, which is um, which is another really interesting video. So it's it's kind of an unusual book because, you know, there's in my inimitable style, there's, you know, some math in there and some details that people yeah. might get a little bored with. But there's a lot of pictures and a lot of graphics and you can skip over a lot of the, the details and still get the general idea. But, right. you know, it's a it's a it's a totally different take on on the UFO phenomenon. So. 
anyway, so that's um, that is this book, Not of This World. And then before Atlantis, how many pages? How many pages? Uh, how many pages? It's like a hundred. What is it? Uh, it's a decent read. 120, 120 pages. It's not. It's not that. It's small. not, it's not that big. It's it's a small book. I think. Uh, I think Microsoft oh, Word said you can read it in like three hours or so, two hours, something like that. Cool. Yes. Yeah, we'll definitely uh, put that up. I'd like to get, uh, read it myself. And um, it's through Amazon, right? Yes. Yep. Okay. Well, so I'll link to that, um, even though it helps Bezos. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm supporting, you know, uh, Musk all the way, you know. But, hey, you got to have teams to root for. That's the American way it's supposed to be. Well, but yeah, I, you know, I mean, I, I think Bezos, uh, you know, I, I I think if he pays his people better, uh, Amazon is like, you know, I think it's a great thing. Uh, and he should stick with retailing. I think that's great. Uh, I don't think his rocket programs are worth that that much or going to make that much of a contribution. Uh, right. You know, I, I, all my money's on Musk. I think. Uh, oh, yeah. That's the way to go. He's got balls and he's got, you know, I can appreciate uh, uh, Yasaku Mazawa. Um, did you hear about that? He's uh, inviting eight people, he put some type of contest, you know, to take eight people when they go up to go around the moon or whatnot. Uh, that's, I don't know, heard about that. something. Yeah. Well, he's the one that, that, that they picked. Uh, that, that, yeah, I mean, I saw him and I don't know who else is going with him. He invested uh, an, un, an, un, an unmentioned amount of billions to Elon Musk. He's a Japanese uh, billionaire and uh, very famous there. And so, and but part of it, you know, he, want, he originally was to bring a bunch of artists, eight artists or, or however many they determined. I thought it was 20 at first, but the number varies. But either way, he wanted to bring a bunch of artists. So when they go, you know, to the moon or around the moon, uh, for obvious reasons, uh, he wanted artist impressions. And isn't that interesting, Dr. Mark? But uh, but now it's also just going out to competition or a raffle or a lottery of some sort to uh, have a seat. And, oh. you know, that takes balls. I, I would love to do that. You know, I would do that. <laughs> so, But I'm like, you know, what are the odds? You know, I don't think, you know, leave it out. For, I, I got bigger dreams. I want to go to Mars on one of those big effing rockets once he's done. But... You know, I want to make sure it's safe to go back down, like Shatner said. But that, that's not for lack of balls. It's just lack of wanting to see, you know, the things in application. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, not, not to distract those with the balls that make this and, and, and make that path available for us. But I'm not an engineer to, to step on. It ain't my ship to go down with the ship. You feel me? <laughs> you know, I just wanted to get me across. But not be the Titanic either. That's why, you know, as long as this thing stands all the time, you know. So all right, so yeah, definitely gotta get that book. Um And this is this is the other book I mentioned, uh the deep it's called Deep History in the Ages of Man. Mark Gaffney, he's uh this is on the pole shift. Um he's done a lot of the uh science on the pole shifts, and that's it. This is a really good book. All right, could you give him a shout out for me uh, or whatnot, or and I'll link his book on the archive page too. I think it's relevant, and that'll be good for the audience to really come up on this because this is a a growing field that's not going to stop. And I know you're not going to stop. You're going to all make our fate out the mark. I know it. Well, I gotta, I gotta, you know, this keeps me out of trouble. I gotta do something, right? 
<laughs> but hey, you know, it's it's bringing in again ushering the Martian revelation, and that's uh, going to be a term in reality in the near future. That's all I'm saying. Uh, but I'm crazy, and that's okay. But, uh, <laughs> it's, wrong. But, it's good to be crazy. It's better to be crazy than be boring, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, <laughs> or bored. You know, but uh, there's a lot of data, more of data, and we just need many more people making questions and uh, start to make things happen with we the people's voice. But as this country changes, I hope, and comes back, I hope, I got to have hope. You got to have hope, you know, just not the hope and change that's being thrust upon us. But anyway, other than that, uh, so what else you got coming up, Dr. Mark? Any conferences or um, anything else or book signings or, again, any conferences? I know this is a... Good thing. Uh, we should definitely do this again soon. Yeah, no, thank, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Um, no, I mean, what am I doing? Uh, uh, just uh, I've got a few research things I'm doing. I, I still actually have a paid job, so I still, you know, I still have uh, quite a bit of work that I do every day. So uh, I'm not retired yet, but um, mm -hmm. I, I, I look forward to that day when it comes. I'll be able to do even more. But uh, Nothing, nothing special. No, I'm, 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 you know, I just got this out. So it's sort of nice to have be done out. with that. And, um, but you know, I'm, I'm, I've started this blog now. So like before Atlantis, I expect none of this world UFO blog will grow and, uh, people, you know, already someone has asked me to look at some, some data and, um, you know, so I'm so certainly open to that. But anyway, yeah, well, thanks, thanks for Join it. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Mark. And uh, again, appreciate your time. And uh, again, you're going to help usher in the Martian revelation. I see it coming. I see it. You're on the path. Your footsteps are not your own. But I'm crazy. Thank you, Dr. Mark. And we're definitely going to be looking more up. And let me get you that contact also for Dr. Wilbur Allen. Very interesting individual, especially regards to picking these things up. Uh, he could explain all the photographic dynamics. I'm sure you two would have a heyday knowing uh, cool. what this is and validating his work, which is, you know, who he is. Well, you'll see. And you tell us. Maybe that would be a good show in the future if you're okay with it. Okay. All, right, all right. You have a good day, sir. And keep you rocking. All righty. All right. Bye -bye. Bye -bye. All right. So there you go. They went Dr. Mark Carlotto. BeforeAtlantis.com Not of this world UFO.com And keep checking out his blogs And this is the enormity that we are faced with people pun intended Of the realities that is Of which trying to be cut from us With all this alone shows that how much we the people of America Need to be focused on who we are And our place in space and our place in the future and the destiny of humankind. So much to embrace. So many possibilities that could benefit we the people. As well as ultimately for the world. And we're only here for the time allotted to us. Each one of you who are listening. That has the power to make a difference. In our own lives as well as the lives of others. And we need to live out and fulfill a vision of which is our potential. Of where we must go. And what we must adapt to. Without giving up our principles, our ideals, our freedoms, our constitution, as well as that ever-ending love and desire to be creative or to freely explore what demands exploring of imagination 
to generate it within us to action as well as to give hope and inspiration and fascination to those who follow us. Our place in space is a rightful heritage of we the people of the United States of America. It is our right to achieve the expanseless bounds of which we may go, being who we are and what we are, to reach the domains of darkest unknown and bring some light with us along the way into that darkness to shine upon everybody. But there's no way that we're going to achieve it or that we can achieve it if you're all stagnant and accept what is being done to us all. You have a say and your voice counts. And it very much so needs to be heard. But speaking of being heard, it's becoming much harder even as we're up on the three-year anniversary of this show's phase back through time. And it's getting incredibly harder. Definitely need all your help. As I cannot promise how many more shows I can continue bringing forth without getting the help and the things that I need. But I know it's not all up to yous. This is my individual plight and fight to bring forth to you using my freedom of speech and trying to help fulfill what our destiny lay for all of us in this nation as we must make our fate. But it is what it is. I mean, there are a couple people who are donating, and that's going to the fund for the computer and of the other equipment that's going to be needed. And we are very far from that objection, but that don't mean I give, I give up. But I don't know what's going to go on, people. i got also a lot of things going on here that I need to take care of. But the sad reality is I can't bring, keep bringing forth something under you all to which I'm limited. And again, I know that's not your responsibility or your problem. It's mine. But just remember that I do this show free. No special clubs, no special subscriptions. And again, like I said a couple years ago, I might be shooting myself in the foot. But I don't believe that you should pay to hear things of interest or to be able to uh, have free speech. There's other efforts that I need to be working on as well. Again, I got a couple books in the going. And they got to get going. <laughs> I wanted to focus this year now, after overcoming a couple hurdles from the previous year, weighing me down, preventing me from concentrating to be able to get down to work. But now the tools that I need in order to achieve that, I need to acquire. And it's substantial. So I don't want to bullshit you all and paint the peachy, creamy image of something that it's not true. It's hard. But I do believe... That faith and perseverance and keep trudging along this path will help me to be able to achieve those goals by blessings. Blessings of God or blessings of the spirit of the Martian revelation of what guides my steps into the walk that we are walking to make our faith and to secure and usher in the Martian revelation and have America's place as a leading stance and a leading position of how that needs to be done. For all of us, again, as well as for the rest of the world, we are the best hope. But that's the thing about America. You get to, to take those risks, to do things of which otherwise would be impossible or improbable. But without trying, there could be no effect in achievement. You can't give up. I can't give up. Even with so many obstacles about me and against me that tries to prevent me. 
All I know is that this show is what it is, one show at a time. It will get better as well as I will get better. But this is a unique product, and I'm a unique individual. <laughs> With the right to be able to do what I'm trying to do. To say what I say, and what others say. Our place is not here in control and in cages, or in any commie controls and agendas, and socialism projects, and scandemics. Our place is up there and out there in space to embrace ourselves as well as to embrace what we are faced with, pun intended, there, especially on Mars. So please, I must ask again, please hit that big red, white, and blue American donate button. And there are the, a couple of those that do, and I thank them each and every time for the value that they put out to help this along with whatever that they're able to help with. I understand life is life for everybody. Everyone ain't got it all like that. But no special clubs and special subscriptions. Because I don't believe that that's the path that we all need to be on. We need to be on the same page. It doesn't and it shouldn't be about the money. The money should come in blessings through whatever work you do. If you do it all your heart and all righteousness behind you. And passion. That it will come. If not, well... Again, that's a risk that we get to take with the freedom to do so, to make a difference. But that's a losing attitude to think that it wouldn't have an effect, and it does, especially in today's world, where people are so easily manipulated and steered into a controlled daughter or into a controlled narrative that doesn't exist or even isn't right, and it's wrong with an agenda to keep us away from the plans of what that they want to achieve and that they have achieved and where they want to go to lead us all. And it's not up there to Mars. But yet they keep wanting your money and your money and giving you hopes that they're leading you on the search for life and to bring you or your children into the fascinating reality of where our potential can and needs to bring us out there in space, especially on Mars and beyond. I would love to say to you all that we're going to have continuing shows. The fact of the matter is I can't do something half-fast. Like I know there are people who are care who are who have offered me, yeah, I can get your computer system and this and that, but this, that's not just what I need. I need not just for doing this show. See, I'm an independent Mars researcher and analyst and image processor as well. And I need the tools that I, which I need in order to do the jobs of what I'm doing, of which the show is only a part and will be utilized in connection with. I can't leapfrog between systems. i got to have what I need set up and made specifically for my needs that would last me some time, which I'm told that it would. Things are only getting more exciting out there, but at the same time, we need to be in a position so things keep getting exciting and excited. Things to get excited about, to keep these subjects being spoken about, being investigated, being inquired, instilling thought, as well as inspiration to application. And I know where it needs to go, but I don't have the means. But charging for free speech... Charging for things to which puts a control and a damper upon others, having an ability to be able to be a part of, of where this needs to go. That's why donations are very important. 
And again, they're few and coming, and that's not knocking those who have done so. Because again, they give out of what they can when they can to help along, and it has helped. But it's not substantial. It's not what I'm about. And again, maybe again, like I said long long ago, maybe I'm shooting myself in the foot because of that. But that's what I don't believe in. It's about the need. It's not about the greed. We don't need greed. There's too much greed out there. And too many of those who want to control, again, and steer where truth is or how it should be looked at or interpreted and questioned. But yet they take offense because they feel like you're paying them that makes them some type of leader, some type of scholar. No, to me, it's obvious that it just makes them some fucking crook. Because if that's all you got in life to give is to make money off of something of which it should be free and represented by freedom, you shouldn't be charging for that there's nothing else that you could do or bring forth through the blessings and where you're, you're going with regards to speech or your radio or video programs, which claims to be and in, in the fight for truth. But if you can't pay, you're not there. Therefore, you're cut out. Therefore, how much truth is being brought to you, number one? Two, and how many possibilities can it really mean to really make a difference? Because all it is for, really, is for people to milk and bilk and to help those who control all this shit to control us all. And these folks who get funds for what? Free speech. They limit the masses when they pull that shit. I'm not saying it's wrong to make a living or anything, but there's other means that it could be done. And that it should be done. But then again, look at me. Uh, this show, who knows what's going to go on with it, right? Look, look, look who's talking. But at least I come at it from a heart of freedom. Again, which needs to be all of ours. And many are forgetting that of who and what we are. We are Americans. And yes, we are exceptional. We are a standout from the rest of the world. Our enemies are closing in. They want to destroy us. They want to take what was ours and give it to themselves to punish us for the arrogance of being who and what we are as Americans and what we have achieved and have been prevented to achieve again. This is not something new. This is a culmination of everything that's going on, of things that was put into place to prevent us from achieving those great things again for the benefit of those who are unworthy to even be placed side by side working with us. International collaborators and cooperators. America first. As we are now in a fight for our lives. And the situation is dire. Just as well as the survivability of this show because of my inabilities and lack ofs. But I still try to do what I need to do to do my part. And with the freedom to do so. To become who we are and who we must become. To make our fate. To save America. And keep America great. And take our rightful inheritance up there in space. Especially on Mars. It is we the people who have achieved that and who have earned it and who have paid for it. Like the opening song again. Life is a lemon and I want my money back. So again, focus on the positive things that this show brings forth to you and has brought to you this night, especially with Dr. Mark Carlotto 
Again, BeforeAtlantis.com. Get his book, Before Atlantis, and click on the links for his other books there. Also about Mars, The Case for the Face, The Martian Enigmas, etc., etc. It's all there on the page. Help support Dr. Moore Carlotto as he helps usher our fate in the future of the Martian Revelation. And hopefully soon, until next time, hopefully next week, we shall be back with another bizarre, crazy episode. Just remember that we are not alone. So get over that once and for all. And now it's time that we as Americans must stand up and face it. And face the enemies here on this earth and any potential away from earth. So until next time, please consider it all. Good night.